Tracy, creating the crowning role of his memorable career as the Mountain Man. Robert Wagner taking top place among the screen's most exciting young stars as his brother. Claire Trevor as the widow. William Demarest as the village priest. Barbara Darrow as the playgirl from the glittering outside world, whose lure was behind the fantastic adventure that set brother against brother. Isn't there anything inside you that tells you it isn't right? You want me to take you up to the top of the mountain within the sight of God so that you can pick the pockets of dead people? Does money mean that much to you? I'd do worse than that to get out of here. Scenes of raw courage and heart-stopping suspense on the knife edge of disaster. Scenes where every shock, every thrill is surpassed by the one that follows on this foolhardy climb to loot an airliner wrecked on the icy summit. Zachary, in the plane back there, there's something in there, something moved. I always thought the guy who uh, who's like the, the bird guy in Buck Rogers, yeah, was I always felt like they had to have modeled him after that like eagle Muppet. Oh, um, the, the, the conservative. <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> does he look like that guy? Yeah, a little bit. Well, we're talking because the the little Mel Blank voice robot looks like a penis, the head of a penis in that, and the because they're replaying Buck Rogers now, full 1080. I uh, or well, not 1080. I'm sorry, 480, 480. What is it? 80. <laughs> what, I no. What's the uh, what's the the high def? 720, 1080, 1080p. Yeah, 1080i. I tried to watch it and it looked. The movement was weird. Yeah, well, because it's it's almost like if you watch the Twilight Zone now, they remastered that. That has that crisp, you know. So it has this really fine look, and that's just out there. That show. It's like why are we why are we concerned about this guy Buck Rogers? And he's, I used to love that show when I was a kid, but I don't know if I could even sit through an episode now. I tried I try. to. It's 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 difficult. It's on the. I mean, it's got a lot going on, and, and you know they're trying really hard. Uh, I mean, the girls are hot as hell yeah. in it. You know, I had some of the figures growing up, and it, that was. I don't think that was on very long, right? I don't know because I'm sure I was watching it in rerun. Most yeah, of the I think. Time. Yeah, we were, <laughs> so who knows? Yeah, I don't think I was like. Saddled it up to the TV at prime time to watch. I think it was on like Saturday afternoons or whatever. Yeah, because that guy even he's kind of semi out of shape. The guy, the lead in it, he's like, you know he kind of looks like a poor man's um, uh, what's the name of that? The Fall Guy, uh, Lee Ray Majors. You know. Yeah, yeah. And you then know? the girl was the God. woman from like Silver Spoons, right? Is it the one his female, the, the brunette with blue eyes? Wow, she's got blue eyes. That's interesting. My recollection, she was in something else. I want to say it was Silver Spoons, but I couldn't. Well, you're usually it. better than I am. I'm like, she was in uh, the jazz singer with Al Jolson. You're like, that doesn't make sense, though. It doesn't add up. Yeah, the that's numbers 60 don't years add. before. <laughs> yeah, the numbers don't add and up. she's 25 in Buck Rogers? So, well, uh, yeah, so that's what we were talking about penises, heads of penises because of Buck Rogers. Like, people aren't falling for that thing. I mean, don't parents like, Jesus, Timmy, doesn't that look like... Uh, 
A little beard. It's a robot. It's a head of a penis, George. And beard. then there's that circular. Yeah, that he wears thing. around and talks like, hey. It's like a computer. <laughs> and then it's funny because this that's supposed to be in the future in a different dimension. Not, not a different dimension, but like years ahead. It's a new society and it's still just they got transistors and they're like, yeah, you know, yeah. anal- all analog. We've only developed analog. You know, I started to get for some reason that a pet peeve has a has a has arisen. Welcome to Saturday night movie sleepovers. I'm Dion Baya. And I'm Jay Blake. Pet peeves. Pet peeves. <laughs> it's the pet peeves episode. I've started watching, you know, the new Star Trek movies. Okay. And then the wa- rebooties. And now, yeah, and now watching like Orville. Okay. That move that shows and movies that take place in the future when they're they want to be nostalgic. Like even Demolition Man, which we were talking we were about just before talking we started about Demolition recording. Man. Yeah. It's always. They're always nostalgic for mu- for music from like the eighties and nineties. Yeah, because that's what they think their audience is. The only people are going to be care about. But when you get something, they never that's, put Glenn Miller on that's centuries. Yeah, ahead. There's still you could listen to something that was in forty years from now. In, <laughs> yeah, and it would still be considered classic. Yeah. So I want to hear some. I want to see. I want well, to hear like, some future music on these shows. You know, I'm. I'm, I'm I haven't seen the latest Star Trek movie, the new one, but uh, the J.J. Abrams, certainly the first two, like, evidently the Beastie Boys are huge in the future, because isn't, like, uh, I think, um, Sabotage yeah, in the first... They're, in both, they're in, like, the first and third movie. Yeah, you know, I was like, wow, this is a crazy world. <laughs> <laughs> the Beastie Boys have taken over. That's the yeah. knowledge. I mean, in, in Orville... I love the Beastie Boys. In Orville, Seth MacFarlane's a big Billy Joel fan, but... And I, what I year got, is Orville take? And I, you're talking to... One, one of the <laughs> biggest Beatles... <laughs> Card-carrying... Joel Joel fans you can met me, but I was like, "Well, what about someone who was popular a hundred years after Billy Joel? How come we can't hear that person?" Yeah, why can't we hear like uh, Busty Dubemeyer? Speculation of what music was like. It's all Sonic, Inkeberg, Hunkberdink's grandson, (laughs) Jabberwocky, Forsyte. Anyway, foreskin. So I'm like, God damn it. Yeah, Jesus Christ. And that's kind of related to last week's episode. We were doing um, uh, Galaxy Quest, the tangent episode. Oh, yeah. I forgot we did that. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot we've met before. <laughs> I thought Willow was our last episode. <laughs> Completely blocked out Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Willow and then Galaxy Quest. We're doing all the sleepers. And now we're, we're, we're coming again this week with... with Fans have been demanding it. <laughs> yes, high demand. High demand for this this one this week. We're we're, um, we're in February now, and last year we did Kung Fu February. So this year, this month we're doing Kung Fu February again, minus the Kung Fu, <laughs> just the February. Oh, he does throw one kick. He does. He does throw a kick, and, a, and he might even does, doesn't he do like a judo chop at some point? Well, unfortunately, Kung Fu February <clears throat> just didn't. Didn't take off as they thought it would. <laughs> didn't take off as well as we were hoping. So we're going to keep calling it <laughs> Kung Fu this, February. Despite our special guest. Yeah, uh, TV's Mike Morona. TV's Mike Morona. You might know him also from Home uh, Alone and Slackers and the Ameritrade Trade commercials. <laughs> the back old Ameritrade commercials. That, that put uh, internet stock trading on TV on the map. That was They never did that before. So much so that he went and met the president at the time. Yeah. But I digress. Uh, we had and we brought him in the heavy guns to do Enter the Dragon. And we did a couple of great movies. We did Enter the Dragon, and then we did a Fist of Legend, uh, Drunken Master, Drunken Master Two. Yeah, with Jackie Legend Chan. of the Drunken Master. Yeah, and we were thinking like, you know, this is really going to start a huge tradition. And, <laughs> and then we were getting our, we were getting far ahead of ourselves. Every month's going to be a theme, and then 
Now people are like, eh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, so we're maybe do- that'll come back again another time. Yeah, so we're doing Kung Fu February this year. We had our very, we had our first really cold week last week here in the Northeast. Yeah, we in did. My opinion. Yeah, I mean it was, and cold. so it sparked, as the cold usually does for Dion and I. Yeah, that we need to do some. Cold. Movies that take place in the cold, <laughs> in the cold, <laughs> in the cold movies. As we like to go, uh, our seasonal watch. Previous years, we've done the thing. We've done the yeah. Around this time, we've done the thing. Uh, we did um, the Night Stalker. Yeah, that was a ch- that was a chilly. That was a chilly atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> a chilly Las Vegas. Yeah, a <laughs> lot of women getting killed. I didn't know why those poor little women of the night were getting killed. But yeah, we've done a lot of cold movies in the past, uh, and you know, of course. Around Christmas time is always cold. We do cold movies, so we figured uh, we'll do a cold movie this way around. And um, and we're like, you know what, a little climbing. Maybe we'll do some a climbing movie. We were thinking about what what, and then we were thinking, you know, people are always demanding this movie. <laughs> well, I think we should. I do want to say disclaimer up front <clears throat> for anybody that hasn't seen this movie. Yeah, and the and will potentially want to watch this movie. Movie either. F- to be prepared for this podcast yeah. or after we discuss it. It is by far the most politically incorrect movie we've done so far. <laughs> um, do you think, well, we had the Notorious Falling Down episode. Yeah, but I think this one and th- what did we have takes to, the cake. And where did we have to take, didn't we have to make politically incorrect this? Oh, for taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yeah. We, but, were, we were tipping our, we were touching our toes in the water for that. <laughs> And then this one is, you know, look, there's not, there's a lot of jokes that just for some, well, I could tell you why. <laughs> they just not like, for some, there's a reason. Yeah, there's, they don't translate well. Uh, rape jokes just don't translate well. <laughs> rape jokes just, they do not hold up. No, and then, you know, more than one by different characters. No, that doesn't hold up. Um, you know. Some inappropriate touching yeah, of women slapping, by men. And that, that went on for quite a while after this. You know, that went on well until like a year ago. People, you know. Well, hitting women on their high knees, um, and there's a dog, and there's a, named a derogatory yes term for gay people, which I think is brilliant. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the context, the joke in it is, I think, is very, very funny. So there's, there's so yes, so, so there is some, some, some uh, earmuffs that might have for some people in this, uh, but we'll be discussing it here or there. We can point it out to you, uh, as well as. I think also a good disclaimer is if you haven't seen it, check it out before you watch them. Listen to the podcast. I mean, we are going to spoil yeah. a whole lot of this. Movie. We're going to probably spoil <laughs> the whole darn thing for you. And you know, I was thinking too um, in the in the greater picture of our themes of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. This kind of does play into the idea of us talking about our adventure of special effects, where we always we've been kind of on the other side of the seesaw. Where we've done movies where, you know, like, uh, it's it's very special effects heavy with prosthetics. Or maybe we start having miniature work or puppetry. Uh, and then you start getting into, we've done stuff with computers and CGI and then the full-blown CGI. On the other side of that is this where this is kind of a movie where, you know, back in the day they would just go out and shoot it you <laughs> know, just, on location. They would just go do it. Somebody would get killed doing it, as in this movie. A, a, a mountain climber was killed while this was being made. And uh, we've talked about that era of movies where culminating in, you know, Vic Morrow being killed on a Twilight Zone movie set. But back in the day, sometimes uh, they would just go out and shoot it. And it's weird because now when you watch it, it doesn't look as, I guess, because your eye is almost kind of used to a little more daring shot or trickery. Or some of it's like, oh, you know, okay. There is a lot of it where 
unfortunately, I feel like they were kind of wasting their time being up there. Yeah. I mean, there's some beautiful, like, Vista shots and yeah. stuff. But there are shots where, like, you can't. Te- it's they like a, didn't need that. There's no the perspective as such. That yeah, you can't. But I feel they like could have been. There's there's a whole scene where they're they're you know they're in the snow. Yeah. Where it kind of looks like they're just laying on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> like they didn't like I'm. You know they didn't need to be on the face of a mountain. Did, yeah, to do all <laughs> they that. could have just been lying <laughs> on a bunch of snow and it probably would have passed. And you fog the lens a little bit, it would look fine. <laughs> could have maybe thought about the the movie magic aspect of movie making just a little bit more. Yeah, to not put uh, so many people's lives in risk. Yeah, but uh, but the shots that you can tell what's going on are pretty impressive. Yeah. no doubt. And I wonder if it's also just our eyes just getting kind of. You know, spoiled. I think it's part that, and I think it's part just the way it's shot. Yeah. Um, you know, I. I mean, I. You know, we try not to be negative, but I. I personally am not a fan of Clint Eastwood as a director. Yeah. And I've. I, I don't think you would have been able to get a director to go up and do what he did. Yeah. But I think with a more talented director. That kind of stuff would have been more impressive. Yeah. Well, we're doing the Iker Sanction this week with Clint Eastwood, 1975, based off the book of the same name. And it is one of those kind of uh, genre movies. And now this is another hard thing, too, because <clears throat> it is so much comparable to a James Bond. And Well, it is definitely in the category of, like, Bond exploitation. Yeah, and it's hard because then... I've never, growing up watching this movie and being a fan of it at a very young age, it just seemed like, oh, it's another kind of spy movie where, you know, certainly the book was written to kind of spoof uh, the Bond, where you know, with the, the, the Jemima Brown names, and there's another name in the book, Randy Nickers. I mean, this is it just... Buns. Yeah, where it's, you're getting... <laughs> You're getting and even that, like even like that. That uh, there's a character's name who's just dragon in the movie, but his name in the book is like your ass is dragging. Yeah, yeah, you know your ass is dragging. You know, so it's like you get these. Which is hilarious. Yeah, you get these names. That's a great uh, phone prank phone call. <laughs> oh, you call him the Bo's Bar. Looking for dragon. Who? For your ass is dragon. Okay, stand First by. First name your ass is. Uh, it's your ass is dragon. Yeah, there. Uh, but for this, it doesn't. You know, a lot of the critics rip this as, like, just a Bond wannabe. And it's hard because, of course, it's put against that. But then every other movie that comes out that has a spy intrigue movie is going to be compared to... For, for Well, I don't know if I agree with that. You know I what I mean? I mean, it's... The book, as far as I... I mean, you read the book. But as I far as I book. could tell from the research is that, like, the book was written as a spoof on Bond movies. Or at least a nod to Bond movies. Yes, and so inevitably, the, I mean, it's there's one thing. It is clear. It is clearly Bond exploitation. Yeah. I mean, it's like that's the purpose of this movie. Yeah. So you can't say like every movie like this is going to be considered. I mean, this movie was made to be that. No, <laughs> but it's like a, you know, Star Wars comes out, so then every other movie in space is going to be compared to Star Wars. So it's like yeah. you know, so when when whatever movie makes that first step into no man's land, and I I don't know. If, yeah, if but go there's, back. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you can, I, I totally see your point, but I think it's, it's a fine line. I mean, there's some things like Star Trek is, was first, but, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture, I mean, it got made because of Star Wars, but you can't really compare it to Star Wars. But you can compare Battlestar Galactica, the original show to Star Wars, because 
it's a f- sheer. It's it's an obvious yeah <laughs> rip off of, uh, of of Star Wars. Of Star Wars, you know. I but I wonder like at the, the time way. are people comparing the Star Trek movie to Star Wars because Star Wars is so big. Yeah. Even though Star Trek came out, a lot of people didn't hold yeah, it in their hearts. Yeah, that's like saying people were comparing people. You, well, you then then Star Wars would obviously be compared to like 2001: A Space Odyssey. You know yeah, I mean they're both space movies. Well, I wonder if it was at the time. I mean, I'm sure it was for effects and stuff. Yeah, I don't think. You know, in a nutshell, why don't you give us the give us the what well, the, the plot of this the, movie? The three the three sentences uh, <laughs> breakdown. Of we got it. We got this a, movie's about a, a retired assassin uh, played by Clint Eastwood who is uh, lured out of of retirement to go do another hit because he kind of needs to or he's compelled to, and then. Uh, because he's a former mountain climber as well, it's it's two part. One because he's the assassin. Second is that he's the mountain climber. He's able to. to there, there's going to be this expedition to Eiger Mountain, which is in Switzerland on the Alps, and uh, he's kind of his hand is forced to go make this what they call sanctions, uh, this retaliatory assassination against people who killed one of their agents at the beginning of the movie, and uh, that's basically it in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, th- from I did read the book by Traverian, and uh, that came out in '72. Was a bestseller and uh, international bestseller. And it's funny because it reads almost like a novelization. I think I said that to you of the movie. Yeah, the movie is very close to the book. I mean, even line for line, there's entire scenes that are just taken from. Um, uh, there's very few um, differences uh, plot-wise that don't happen in the book. Uh, I do feel like there is a a, a, a conscious decision uh, in the movie version to try not to make it so much like a Bond movie. You know, it is a little more heavy-handed, sort of in the in the book. But I feel like the spoofing or the lampooning in the book of Bond, and I don't know if it translates to the movie, isn't to make this kind of a uh, a laugh out loud, kind of like a Naked Gun kind of a spoofing. Yeah, yeah. It's, no, I would agree with that. It's, I don't think the movie is spoofing a Bond movie, yeah. but it's definitely it's going in the playing the genre. with a lot of the same tropes that a Bond movie does and, to, to intentionally be reminiscent of what a Bond movie is like. Yeah, but then in enough to be kind of different, where you don't have the Bond, you know, you don't have gimmick, you know, no gimmicks with, you know, here's your. You know your yeah, gun no, that does different things, yeah. or here's your car that does. You know, it's more probably more what the original books were like than the uh, Ian Fleming books. Yeah, yeah. Than what the by the time Roger, the Roger Moore stuff is where it got very kitschy. You know, it's, yeah. it's not like that. It's yeah, probably it's like, more. It's a fine line. I mean, it's definitely plays more like a. I mean, obviously, it's not really a spy movie, but it, because he's not a spy, he's an assassin. But uh, well, it's in that le- it's it, in that world. Yeah, but it's kind of a. a, a an interesting blend of just like <clears throat> a serious uh, spy, for the lack of a better term, mystery, and then some clear nods. Yeah, to like, like his the guy who gives him orders is an albino guy who <laughs> like some crazy. Yeah, he can't, you know. <laughs> and this is it's which is very outlandish, which they could have avoided for the movie if they wanted to get further away from the Bond stuff, but. Uh, it's very of the bo- of the Bond sensibility. Yeah, of that. Well, of the fantastic of the of the, yeah. these. Diff- you know, it has a fake agency. It's called C two C with Roman numerals two, and then it stands for the Central Intelligence Institute. Some people say, and it was kind of, and it's 
the C2 is 102 in Roman numerals is the amount of uh, other agencies that the, the that I think our government has. And this was in that order. That's how they, you know, this was the 102nd yeah. uh, organization or, 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 or thing that the, our government came up with. And it came out of World War II, and it's kind of like a CIA uh, and they do different kind. They do like uh, it's all kind of spy espionage stuff. There's a sanctions unit. There's a search unit. Uh, the search unit usually finds out stuff like that and, and gets uh, all the the secret stuff. And then the sanction unit does a lot of the killing. And the sanction basically we we're retaliatory. As I guess maybe you think the CIA may go murder people or whatever. The sanctions usually to keep up the espionage po- Cold War politics. If you know if if one of ours is killed, they would go send someone to sanction one of theirs. Mm-hmm. And that's how the, the, the fine line works. Uh, the, the head of that organization, this guy, your ass is Dragon. You're, you're, <laughs> or uh, they just call him Dragon in the movie. Uh, he is an albino, like you said. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, and it's, it's interesting, too, because that gives you the sense of where usually it's the Bond villains that are, have these kind of eccentricities of the world of, of Bond, we it's almost like it's a um what is it like almost like an admission that like it's like we're you know we're not working for or this is who we're working for and i think they make the connection in the movie where he used to work for the nazis yeah and then you know we he defected or we grabbed him and then you know he was the perfect you know uh he was in hiding and when you know the old computers when they were making the C2 organization uh, and who they would use in the C2. All the computers would, would you know, uh, really just um, crunch the numbers. And the only number uh, name they came up with was this guy, Dragon, who can successfully run this organization. That's how he got... <coughs> I feel like if this was He got made, taken. I feel like if this was made back in the day and, you know, you went with, like, a Bogart as Hemlock, the Clint Eastwood character, you'd yeah. have... Uh, Sydney Greenstreet. Sydney Greenstreet. <laughs> Perfectly. Later, you know? And do you remember uh, the actor Thay, uh, Thayer David? Do you remember when he was last on a Saturday? He's been on a couple of times, right? Yeah, he was on. He we, was in Rocky. He's in Rocky. He plays the the, the fight promoter. Yeah. Uh, who towards the end when Rocky's in the ring and uh, he's like, "What are you doing? You know, what are you doing here?" And he's like, "Well, the the." Trunks, they're wrong. The color's wrong. He's like, ah, it doesn't really matter, does it? You put out a good show. Yeah, we talked all about that with the poster being different and all that yeah, in, yeah. in Rocky. And then I think he's an amazing Spider-Man, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's the bad guy <laughs> in the Spider-Man pilot where he's, the, it was when they were doing that kind of Manchurian candidate telephone kind of idea that we did last year. We did, we did what is it, Spider-Man and TV we did? It was, we yeah, did a couple yeah. TV movies. We did a couple cartoons clumped into one Spider-Man episode. So he was the heavy in that. And, uh, you know, which were both after this. Yeah. Yeah. This is 75. And then Rocky that's 76. And then I think that shows 78. Maybe? Yeah. So he's been on here before. And then, uh, we have the great George Kennedy, who I absolutely love. George Kennedy to me is like in the same realm of like Borg nine where it's like great character actor. You love him. You know, he's done a whole crap load of stuff and only just died recently. Uh, I think he died like a week after his 91st birthday or something like that yeah. in the past couple of years. And then uh, Jack or uh, Jack Cassidy's in this too, who I love, who is the f- father of David Cassidy, who people know. You yeah. know. And um, Husband of Shirley Jones yeah. at the time. And he ended up dying in bed while smoking. It was a couch. But yeah, he it was, was a couch. falling asleep smoking, I think. He yeah. was an alcoholic. and Who ha- isn't? And I happened to, for circumstances that aren't, for reasons that aren't worth going into, I still happen to know a lot about David Cassidy. Yeah. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> and I've actually seen him play live a couple of times. But uh, it was, it, and he, he passed away and too, he right? He passed away yeah. like a year or two ago. Uh, and it was just unfortunate because they had a very weird relationship. Um, his dad, I think, was very jealous of David. This is like other people's accounts. Yeah. Uh, Jack is is Jack jealous. was very jealous of David's success with the Partridge family and and stuff. And then they did they didn't have the best of relationships. And obviously, like most sons, they just you know looking for his approval from his dad. But uh, and then unfortunately, like David Cassidy ended up just like kind of taking the same path of just like becoming a, a an addict of alcohol and other things and. Unfortunately, just not being able to deal with a lot of things. And yeah. uh, there was a special on while he was trying, that came on shortly after he died on TV where he was trying to record his last album. And he was all messed up. And it was it was really sad. And what year? How old was he? I don't know. I, I guess mean, 50s or 60s at that yeah, point? Yeah, I mean, I guess. If you say he's probably, Partridge Family was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So he was probably but, like Yeah, 20. late 60s or early 70s. So he was probably like in his early twenties at that point. Yeah. Now I don't know how to do math. So however that translates. Forty years, so sixties. I mean, Jack. I don't think his father, Jack Cassie, wasn't that old in this either. I would say he's probably close to fifty. Yeah. No, it's know? tough, but it's tough to tell. In seventies, yeah. they always look older. Yeah. <laughs> People look older in seventies movies. And they he's harder back then. And it's 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 a lot is going on in this movie with with the with the the characters and stuff. Where like he's playing this outwardly flamboyantly gay guy almost in taking a page out of Liberace and I've actually been been getting into Liberace in the past couple of years like just how amazing he was musically and stuff people just know him as this very like like you know um uh, flamboyant homosexual person who yeah. had this you On know talk show circuit yeah or had this act that was forever in Vegas and all that you know and most famously Michael Douglas did a movie a couple of years beyond the candelabra or behind the candelabra about him but uh his piano playing is of legend, like how he can just, if you watch his stuff and how, you know, the stuff he's able to do. So I feel like Jack Cassidy here is playing a little that here, but it's weird because at the time, and excuse me, I don't know if, if it's if, if it's because of the error or whatever. It, it, in the book, he's not, people don't realize he's gay. You know, it's just like, it's, it's, it's weird. It's one of these things where it's like I talk with a guy that I work with and he talks about his, you know, his parents who were Irish off the boat older and how like his mother would love, you know, Liberace, but would never put together that Liberace was a homosexual, for, yeah, you know, yeah. just did it for a to her. And then the father would know. And father's like, what are you talking? Of course he is, you know? So it's like, I think that's kind of that mindset here where like, you know, in the book, women love him. You know, women think he's so smartly dressed. They throw themselves at him, but he's very flamboyantly gay. But it's one of these things, once you realize, oh, of course, you know. And uh, so he plays a very interesting part here. And his dog here, he names the dog Faggot, which I think is pretty funny of the era. But, I mean, it's not politically. <laughs> I don't you know, personally get the joke, but, I mean, I get the implication. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's he's a dirty joke. He's certainly you know? not hiding yeah. it in the movie. You know, yeah. the orders are dykery. Yeah, of a daiquiri. Yeah, he's very. You know, he's got like a guy who I guess is supposed to be like his bodyguard. Yeah, but it's like a real muscly kind of kind of guy you would have seen in like muscly kitsch. Yeah, you know, men's magazines that were used for you know as gay pornography back in the day. Yeah, and it's very. And he's an ex. That guy's an ex wrestler too, and they might have a relationship. I mean, it's all playing on that. You know, like going back to then again, the, there's an African American female in this. Her name is Jemima Brown, 
and it's going like pussy galore. It's like that kind of a, you know, and there's a, uh, a name of a, uh, a girl that gets cut out of this that when they get to Iger, the, the camp down there, her name is like a, a British girl named Randy Nickers. And it's like that may, you might get away with that back then because people may not know what Nickers are or Randy you know, in, in British parlance where I think now maybe people do realize what that is. So, and that's, that's not in the movie, but you have these little kind of, uh, I guess, play on bonds. But then there's, when, when it translates into the book, you kind of realize that like the Jack Cassidy kind of character is almost the, believe it or not, like almost the sanest one psychologically. He realizes what's going on. He realizes the hypocrisy of it all. He's the one who realizes yeah. Eastwood's character in it. Jonathan Hemlock is a ex climber who is a ex uh, who's now teaches. Uh, he teaches art classes at like a college university, and uh, his name is Hemlock. And then what ends up happening is when he's drafted by the the this special organization, they all get code names. The 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 people the assassins of. Da- Dragon gives him dangerous poisons. So, like the beginning of the movie, the guy who's killed his codename was Wormwood. So everybody gets these different. But then Dragon thought it was completely apropos that his born name is Hemlock. So his his codename was Hemlock. And so you have these different things that are you know those kind of names are played on. Uh, and in the book as well, Eastwood is a, is a sociopath. He can't. He doesn't have feelings for, it. and that's just why it's easy for him to kill. It doesn't. You know, he doesn't have doesn't feel bad about stuff like that and then he's also a womanizer too and but his use of womanizing is for getting the sexual release not the conquest you know where he's not looking to it's more of getting the uh i don't know how do you how do you phrase it you know the the release of the testosterone you know, they, you know, when you get bottled up, if you don't have, you know, a, a, a sex for a while. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's kind of the only. So he he has become almost a ladies' man in, in that kind of way. He's known for his endurance. People, women love his eyes in the book. It's just you think about how his eyes are so special, and he's he, you know he beds these women either for reasons related to the to uh, to being in the organization to get what he needs or for whatever all his life but it this is happening but it doesn't fulfill a sexual need to him you know so it's it's interesting the aspect of his character because the arc in the book is he starts to when he meets this this officer this this spy Jemima Brown she is the one who ends up turning him and he starts having feelings for her and he starts realizing what it is to have and it's odd for him to the point where near the end of the movie, there's this guy he's been wanting to kill the <clears throat> the entire time called Pope, who actually also works for the, the organization. And in the movie, Eastwood beats him up. But in the book, he makes a big thing that he Eastwood lets or Hemlock lets him go where he's like he the whole book. You think he's going to kill him because he because he owes him for for whatever he did. And then he ends, he lets him go. He's like, oh, my God, I let him go. And then he he almost forgives. It's it's a bigger slide when. Uh, the woman double crosses him in it, you know. So he—that's the whole thing—is where you know, if he's going to let you be his friend, it's a very uh, trusting thing. And if you if you um, break that trust, he'll never forgive you, and you become an enemy on his list. So for the end of it, the, the movie ends differently, where Eastwood and uh, and the woman end up together, and George Kennedy. But in the book, it's they all go their separate ways, and he's left alone because even though in his head he wants. The relationship, or he wants to still stay friends with George Kennedy. Both of them have betrayed him, so he loses that. Uh, it's almost the the pride of it. Yeah, you know. So um, this is, I think, 
the movie is uh, groundbreaking for in the mounting mounting mount climbing industry because it's the first movie they actually have done this. They go up and shoot on the side of a mountain for I guess a fictional Hollywood. I mean, there was there was documentaries yeah. and stuff on it. But if you look at stuff prior to this, they did everything like in a in a studio. There's a great movie uh, that I watched rewatched prior for this viewing called The Mountain with Spencer Tracy and uh, what's his name. Uh, Robert Wagner, and uh, that takes place on Mont Blanc in like 1956. That movie takes place, and it's in I think Switzerland too. And they climb up, you know, that the plot of that movie, which is based on a true story, is a plane crashes into a mountain, a passenger plane, and it's up there. So they want to go to the top of the mountain to see if there's any survivors or see what's what up there. And that actually happened a couple of years before to this Mont Blanc. And uh, you know, they go climb the movie. It's a great movie. It's one of these, you know. Cinemascope beauties, you know, uh, maybe but even by Universal, and it's also one of those funny things where it's like Spencer Tracy's probably like in his fifties at this point, so yeah. it's like them casting him, he's completely out of shape. But it's back in the day where you didn't worry about accents, you didn't worry about physical agility, so it's perfectly believable that you know Spencer Tracy, who's like you know topping in his late fifties, is just going to go up and you know <laughs> rock climb alongside of Robert Wagner, who's like 20 or 25 in it, and be better than him. So if you can get past that little thing, it's a very beautiful movie, uh, how they, they shot it all on location, but when they get on the mountain, it's all, you know, in studio stuff, because no one would dream of doing stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of the first movie that goes out and does stuff like that, Iger. And Iger is a very, very famous mountain we can get into later. Uh, and this also is... The third movie Eastwood directed at the time, he did play Misty for Me. He did High Plains Drifter, which was a Western. We talk about the play Misty for Me a little bit when we did The Beguiled. We, we did an episode on that maybe last year or yeah. a year before on Eastwood's The Beguiled. Uh, that was He did that with Universal Picture Studios. He had a contract with Universal, so he did Coogan's Bluff with Universal. He did uh, The Beguiled with Universal. And he was very unhappy with how, which we talk about in the Beguiled uh, podcast, about how Universal went to go market that movie. And it kind of was a flop, uh, partly because of their marketing of the movie and how it was almost an odd casting choice. And then they, they instead of embracing that and trying to go with it, they've kind of exploited the casting choice of Eastwood, which kind of turned a lot of people off because people who wanted to go see a Dirty Harry movie weren't impressed. And then people who weren't into Clint Eastwood or Dirty Harry who might have seen the movie had they known the context, didn't want to see it. So uh, he had a deal left with Universal to, to, I think, maybe do two more movies. So he does a movie called Breezy, which is uh, the first movie he directs and he's not in, and that's with William Holden. And uh, that came and went and didn't do very well. And then there's this movie. And Eastwood, they... Universal, uh, Universal floats this by Eastwood because at the time uh, they had one more picture left in his contract and they thought for him the star and Eastwood liked it and then while training doing the, the kind of going out and kind of figuring out the logistics of having to mount, mountain climb and rock climb he kind of realized it would be hard this could be a good vehicle for him to direct because it would be hard to get someone up there to do kind of stuff like you alluded to a little earlier yeah. to get a director up there at the time so and then also because he didn't want uh, twofold, he didn't want the studio breathing down his throat uh, domestically. He said, oh, I can just go to uh, Europe and shoot this and be away from everybody so I can get what I want done with a small crew and come back and have something to just hand off to them. Uh, the opening of this movie takes place in Zurich, and Zurich is near, I think, near Eiger, where the movie takes place. But in the book, it's in Montreal. So it's very 
you know, different in that aspect. But a lot of the book, it's it's very even lines. Uh, you know, lines with Eastwood when he knocks the, 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 the bodyguard out and he says, you know, I don't like you on my flank because it scares me. I don't like being scared. Like, that's all from the book. George Kennedy's saying that guy looks like he'll give you a, a, a – can break a $9 bill with three $3 bills, all from the book. Uh, so it's it's very interesting how closely the books are – or the, the script is linked to the book. Yeah, well, I mean, originally – the original script was co-written with the guy that wrote the book, right? Uh, yes, and it was also done by our man who did Remo Williams. Well, I think to to develop the screenplay. Yeah, I think originally it was uh, the guy who wrote the book, Tra- uh, Traverian, Traverian, is, which is, is a um, an alias. Yeah, an alias for his real name is Rodney William Whitaker, uh, uh, who gets the like you said he gets the screenwriting credit. Yeah, as Whitaker, not as yeah, Traverian. and it's on the same frame too. So you have script by the, the gentleman who did. Remo and uh, Rodney Whitaker, and then based on a book by, and then it says Traverian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's my understanding that uh, originally <clears throat> Universal had optioned the book, and they were developing it as a vehicle for Paul Newman. Yeah, uh, and there were versions of the script <clears throat> written by Hal Dresner and uh, Rodney William Whitaker, and the Hal, original author. Yeah, and Hal Dresner was. He also uh, wrote one of my favorite movies. Yeah, <laughs> with, yeah, with Dirk Benedict, which uh, I think we brought up. Didn't we brought up that a couple of years ago? You probably because I love that movie. I yeah. forgot why though. You were talking about. I listen to these so much for when we have to go back and make sure they're clean and you know there's no mistakes. But I forgot you brought up a point because of um, maybe a transformation in there or something. Yeah, there was a. Well, he's turning into a snake. Yeah, but I forgot why we brought it up for specifically for something. Okay, uh, and then. Uh, Apparently nobody liked those versions of the script. Well, Newman thought it was just too violent and in like bad taste, I guess. Or see, a lot of the issues you come to find out, and this is another thing where we're talking about warning people. Like a lot of this stuff, it was just a different world back then. Yeah, you know, you can't condone any of it, but it's like you know, rape jokes. It's like that's you know, who the hell what these fucking people are thinking? <laughs> but it's just this is it's weird. This is the world back then, or or as silly as I I've read around and people find it very racist that they named the African-American woman Jemima Brown or of course but it's just it it goes from the book of being the outlandish pussy galore or you know those kind of you're right I mean it's there's the thing and I think we don't need to go down this rabbit hole again uh, again. because (laughs) we've done it a couple of times but in terms of watching these movies decades later yeah we're 50 years on and even you go as far as you know more current recent things like the kevin hart thing with being oscars and then people going back and posting his old santa routines it's like you have like was were things appropriate back then i don't know were they acceptable yes whether you know whether it's right or wrong (laughs) things were certain things were acceptable I just like certain things that are acceptable now won't be acceptable twenty years from and now. There's an argument with the with the Kevin Hart thing because now people like what, you know, what's what are comedians left able to do when you can, you know, yeah. a Don Rickles would not survive in this day and age. A Red Fox would not survive. A Richard Pryor, maybe even an early Eddie Murphy comedy would not survive. So that's why when I say I laugh at the, he calls his dog faggot. It's just so, it's so ludicrous, you know. Yeah. And I think that goes to the point where you know he. 
you know, there used to be a term where like, you know, he's gayer than a $2 bill, which means, you know, and, I, and I, I'm using it in this point of saying like, it's so obvious that he's, a, you know, because of how he acts or how he dresses, maybe yeah, of yeah. that lifestyle. But then back then people wouldn't realize it. So I think going, going to the point of he's saying instead of daiquiri, saying daiquiri, because he's like literally throwing it out there. I'm, you know, because back then people weren't out, out really out. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't until like the you know, this time, the mid to late seventies into the eighties where it was socially acceptable or people had the, um, I wouldn't say the balls, but had the, the courage to come out of the closet and say, Hey, I'm gay. Yeah, Fuck yeah. you all. So I, so I think this is this guy, you know, the, it's, it's maybe the author, uh, Traverian's way of also being ridiculous and spoofing the bond, but also saying, you know, who the hell, you know, this is, you know, throwing into people's faces. Yeah, yeah. And then some people still not getting it. Like the women coming around and like, oh, I loved your dog. And he's like, yeah, I, I'm sh- you know, I'm sure, Which, you know. by the way, Jack Cassidy is great in this movie. Oh, I, that, he's one of my best. <laughs> that's my point. He's like, he's, he, he, I think he steals he it. Gives, he gives one of the best performances in the whole movie. Him and, idea, him and uh, George Kennedy, I think, are great. You know, yeah. I, I'm a huge George Kennedy fan. But yeah, Cassidy in this movie, I've always, I, from a very young age when I saw this movie, he, uh, it put him on my radar, and then growing up, I thought he was uh, homosexual. You know, just just how well he did. I was like, oh, why? You know, he's very flamboyant. You know, uh, I named a guy in in the book I just put out on that his performance in this movie. And then when I got older and I started watching episodic television from that era, you start seeing him in different roles. Yeah, he's on a couple he's on Columbos. A ton of stuff. Yeah, he's all over the place. And then you suddenly realize, oh, he's playing a, a part. Yeah. And I don't know if there's that I'm that ignorant or he's that good. That you don't realize. Oh, he's acting. Yeah, he's oh, he's not being, you know, because some, you know, so it's just, it's so, yeah. you know, he just comes across so well. And like I said, he in the movie ends up being the guy who's trying to explain to everybody, which I think Eastwood's character in the book realizes how ludicrous it all is. Like that this, this world they live in, like he's like, does it matter to you? You know, I'm, uh, you know, he offers. I'm gonna. I can tell you who who the person you want to well, kill. I, mean, I you think know. you have to give a little bit of context because I don't know. You know, this is a movie that I I don't know how many people would have seen, and that he's kind of portrayed as as a bad guy. Uh, Jack, who Jack has? Yeah, the whole organization is bad. It's I just know, you have to play like, your. Yeah, he's he's, he's he, like Eastwood wants to kill Jack Kennedy. Cassidy. I mean Cassidy because he ended up he. Uh, he double crossed him in another mission. Yeah, and going back like to what I said, of, they they work together, double cross. Well, they were best friends. So now he's you know there's yeah. a little bit of vendetta, a vendetta going on there. Yeah, and so he's kind of you know he's a little bit of the of the bad guy. You yeah, know, one of many of the obstacles or whatever that's going on within the film. So just to put like that kind of his character in context of. Of the plot line, yeah, for and, people that might not have seen it, and he—he's uh, very much. They used to be all very good friends, and what they do differently in the 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 movie, which I think is probably a, a credit to either one of the writers or Reese or whoever came up with it, is in the beginning of the book when the guy Wormwood has killed the agent in Montreal, where in the movie it's Zurich. There's no connection to the to the Eastwood Hemlock character. He's just the agent that was. And like kind of buffoonish, he was out doing something like, "Oh, look, they gave me this assignment. I'm, you know, maybe I'm moving up in the business." And then he's murdered yeah. at the beginning, and then later on, uh, it's, the motivation is just you have to take the assignment to avenge this guy's death. Where in the book, or I'm sorry, in the movie, they term it like, "Oh, it's Henri Bach." 
And Eastwood's like, oh, that was my best friend. You know, we were all friends. So it gives Eastwood a little more motivation to take the, 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 the job, aside from the monetary value. And as well as uh, they frame it that the guy who was killed at the beginning, Eastwood, and then Jack uh, Cassidy were all very good friends. And they were in war together. Maybe they were in, look like, it doesn't look like they were in Korea. From the pictures, it looks like it was maybe Vietnam or some sort of uh, 60s uh, conflicts. And then... Uh, Jack Cassidy dimed out or sold information or whatever that got uh, Eastwood almost killed and then the other guy saved him and then so he's always been this guy and it's, it's, I, I love the name Miles Mello and it's Mello isn't spelled W-E-L-L-O-W uh, it's spelled like uh, M-I-L-L-O-U-G-H um, it's always been on Eastwood's radar and Eastwood's like you know if I ever get a chance again I'm going to kill him because he used to be such a good friend of mine you know, and that's another incentive why he takes this deal. Yeah, yeah. And by chance, you'll be able to kill Miles Mello. And he's like, okay, done. That's great. Yeah, yeah. You know. So going back to the script, which <clears throat> yeah. I think you brought up, but also a good, an interesting point. Uh, so there was this script that was written by the guy that wrote the book and also written by this other uh, screenwriter. And though there had been a couple of drafts written by them, from my understanding, from doing research. And then when Eastwood came onto the project there were parts of the script that he didn't care for mm -hmm. and so it, it, from what i found is that eastwood brought on warren burton murphy uh to work on another draft of the script and he was one of the co-creators of the destroyer book series yeah which was the which w was what later adapted into the Remo Williams movie, and Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, which we did an episode on. It's one of our lowest. <laughs> and we love, yeah, and we, I that's the joke. everybody <laughs> to, to go check out our Remo Williams. And we there. talk about the Destroyer series in that, and then him writing the Destroyer series, because the Destroyer series, if I remember correctly from the research of that podcast, he wrote like 80 or 100 books. He was yeah. up there with and like. He co created it with a guy named Richard Spot, uh, Sapper. Yeah, S A P I R, I believe, and Murphy also wrote Lethal Weapon too. Yeah, but uh, and that was another the Destroyer characters, much like another Bond of that era, the Bond kind yeah. of a, of a that kind of a character. Because I don't know, maybe that's kind of why the movie uh, Remo Williams didn't do so well. But Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, kind of seems like it's a product of its time. They try to really eighties it up. Make it a little kind of kid friendly, and I believe, if I recall correctly, it's even it's directed by a Bond director. Yeah, it's, I think it's directed by what's his face, the legendary. Um, oh, I forget his name. Guy. Yeah, <laughs> the guy who did a lot of uh, he did a lot of the early Bonds because they brought it in because they wanted to. Be, they brought him in because they wanted it to be kind of a Bondish kind of a movie, and that's another movie talk about politically incorrect. You have a, a, a white man in yellow face. Yeah. Joel Silver plays a uh, an Asian. You know, he's the Mr. Miyagi kind of a character in that teaching. Uh, what's his face? Um, Williams? Remember, Fred? What's Fred, Fred Deck, not Fred Deckard. Fred Williamson? No, that's, a, that's another actor. Fred Ward? Close. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but he, he's the one who teaches him how to, like, do everything. And, you know, we did a good episode on that, which is funny. It's, uh, and uh, Eastwood brings him on to write the, a, a draft of the script of this movie. But it was, and I also, uh, think it was Eastwood who wanted uh, his character to have more motivation. Well, that was one of the, the, the complaints of the, of the book. So 
I had the uh, the, no- the the not the novelization, but the original book for this for a couple of years, and I was like, oh, you know, if we ever got around to doing it, it would give me a good excuse to read the book. And a lot of times with this, it's like, oh, you know, it's 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 not like you're not looking forward to it. You're like, oh, it's gonna be a, you know, I gotta get through this. And it it was it was great. It was almost like I said again. I keep emphasizing it was like a novelization. I sped right through it. I highly encourage it for any people who are. Um, into the movie, uh, you know, you can get it very cheap, like I did on eBay, and uh, it was the this guy Treverian's first um, Rodney Whitaker. It was his first debut novel, became an international bestseller, and uh, one of the the critics, uh, you know, the, what they slag him off for in it is saying that you know there is no motivations for the characters really in the book. Uh, you know, he's doing it for monetary reasons or this or that, and the characters are are fairly well fleshed out in the book and you get into the character arc of what ends up happening for him so i think that's the reason why in the movie eastwood or whoever thought it up tries to tie the the hemlock eastwood character into being connected to the guy who gets killed at the beginning and then that gives the character more motivation to to want to go right this wrong or go get the people who um set his friend up which i think works a little better uh but that said, it's just, it's very, it's, you know, it, it's an interesting, because it's from the mind, it's written, the guy Treverian, he did a sequel to the Iker Sanction called The Lou Sanction, L-O-O, which is, uh, I ordered to read, and it's, it's, I think it has Hemlock in it as another, as a, as a, as a follow-up, and he says he was disappointed that critics didn't see it as a Treverian, the Iker Sanction as kind of a send-up to the Bonds. So he tried to, I guess, go even more so in um, this follow-up book. But like I said, it's not being kind of set as, a, um, as an airplane or a farce. Yeah. So it kind of psychoanalyzes the world of these people and who you have to be. You know, the Hemlock character, uh, you know, he's, what do you call it? He's a sociopath where he doesn't have the feelings people have for people. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. He lives out in this lovely church in Long Island that he bought, uh, that he turned into his house. Yeah. But in the book, that's his motivation that you only get is the reason to go on this mission is because he lives, uh, he can't really survive on the on the college tuition of whatever he's getting paid. Yeah, yeah. And he has this church that he loves. Well, I mean, here, And that's where he needs the money to, to be able to buy the church outright. You know, he's kind yeah. of running out of dough, and then this painting comes on the market at the same time. So his motivation to take this to, to this this one uh, hit or sanction is to be able to pay the church off where he's the converted house, and to buy this. I think it's a Picasso, yeah, for yeah. his collection. Which, I mean, in the movie, it's they make it clear that uh, he collects art, and that he wants the the initial sanction is because he wants to buy this piece, and then he takes the second sanction to uh, one. For kind of to uh, avenge, avenge, the, death, avenge yeah. the death of his friend, but also too, he demands a very high price so that he can basically retire and not have to do this. And, and which you is know, what he does in the book, which is still you know kind of for for monetary reasons. They add kind of the little cherry on the top of uh, that he's yeah, also going to avenge a friend of his, which obviously gives him more motivation to just say like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, of, but. Uh, so I mean, it's it's not as it doesn't go as because I mean a movie is a movie. It doesn't go quite as in depth of all that stuff, but it's definitely clear that he's got expensive taste. Yeah, 
And he needs to be able to pay for it. And it's just, it's done surprisingly well in the sense of, you know, I watch a lot of stuff and, you know, if I watch a Game of Thrones, I'm like, oh, they cut so much out. And I'm surprised how much they're able to keep in of the movie. I mean, like I said, literally, like, the dialogue is word for word, all the stuff. The only, there's a couple things that are added were in the movie he asked for that IRS statement, which I think is, you know, kind of smart for his character's point of view, so the IRS won't bother him about his paintings. And then they change the... The ending a little bit, and then there's another thing that's changed, which which uh, in the movie which I like. But aside from that, it's it's just kind of straightforward, and it's and it's it's kind of a, it's almost like a Jason Bourne. It's like an alternative, I guess, to the Bond movies. If you know, you look at the era, you have like you know what is that? Three Days of the Condor. You know, spy espionage movies were like in there. You know, pe- this was the pigs and shit of this time. Like yeah. there was a lot of that uh, stuff have that far fair happening before we hit space, you know, with the with the Star Wars movies a couple of years later. Bond was the thing to, you know, to be and to do and, you know, uh, the man from Uncle or uh, you know, the Saint, which was earlier, but the, you know, the people yeah. love the the Avengers, the the T V, the British T V show. Uh, you know, that that was what people were into and they liked that kind of a thing at the time. Yeah, well I mean I think it was you know, it was a product of its time. I mean, I think we were, you know, in the midst of the Cold War and then the Cuban Missile Crisis and all this other stuff. I think there was, you know, I think people were, they were making, putting, you know, real life things that were probably uh, in the news or talked about and just putting them in a fantastic, a more fantastical context kind of, or context of, and playing on it, you know, like every, you know, like art or film or, or whatever entertainment kind of does. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, Fleming wrote those books, the, the Chinese James Bond books out of influences of, of things that were going on, you know? Yeah. Post-World War Two in the, in the, the, cause he was involved kind of in that world. Um, Ian Fleming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Eastwood has the cloud at that time to be able to go, you know, kind of go take something, helm it, and go away and and do it on his own and not really be bothered in Europe. And also, he's 45 at this point, too, so that's kind of a to, to do an undertaking to be able to, to say, I want to go do a, a, a mountain climbing movie with, without any kind of prior training or any really interest in mountain climbing. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's a tough kind of, uh, you know... Well, you, to get yourself into that physical condition to be able to do that kind of a thing. And then he was talking about where he wanted, um, you know, his friend Don Siegel, who we've talked about again in the the, the, the Dirty Harry podcast. We talked about him in the Beguiled podcast, even in the Invasion of the Body Snatchers podcast um, that we did the remake. Uh, he was maybe thinking maybe he could direct this movie. And then it was the issue of, you know, if they're going to be shooting this on the... You know, because up till that time, nobody had thought of going out and shooting anything on location, or they just thought it was cost prohibitive or t- too dangerous. So, East was like, you know, for this to look good, uh, at the time, East would like doing his own stunts and doubling that to to have shots where you could see it's me in the position and then you know, pull back or whatever. It would be better than going to shoot on location some of this stuff, and then it would be hard with a crew going on on a mountain to have a director having to be able to you know to 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 direct so yeah. to speak in, in in these kind of conditions on Iger mountain uh uh and you could see that there, that would be a challenge so then since eastwood had already had yeah kind of like two or three movies under his belt why kind not direct? of like 
the less people we can we need to lug up there, probably the better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, we can eliminate if we can if we can start combining jobs to get just as few people to have to do this as possible. And since like you said, hey, he had already been directing films, it ended up being kind of a natural choice. Yeah, he hires a guy who had done a documentary a couple of years before, which I think was nominated for an uh an Academy Award. A guy, Mike Hoover, he did a um a mountain climbing film called a short film called solo uh about a mountain climb in yosemite national park and eastwood saw that and liked that documentary so he called him up and said hey you know two things one can you can you take me someplace and kind of get me in kind of a shape so that i know what i'm doing and i look like i know what i'm doing on film of mountain climbing and also would you want to be the principal cameraman to oversee the, the the footage while we're on the mountain shooting and uh the guy Hoover says, "Yeah," and then they take him, and he takes him to, um, I guess, to to the um, uh, Monument Valley, where like you know John Ford and Wayne used to shoot a lot of. And then they, he did a lot of conditioning there, and then they did some conditioning in Carmel, where Eastwood lives in California, uh, some mountain climbing. And then Eastwood even decided when they were going to do a test climb, which is on that totem pole, uh, yeah. that they would shoot it, and that's what they shoot with George Kennedy. And then you have that sequence. Which is from the book as well, you know, where they go up the mountain and uh, the totem pole. Uh, beer at the top. Yeah, which is another funny right out of the book where he's like, you know, you want a beer? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, he didn't bring a beer. He's like, I didn't. Of course you did. You know, it's in his backpack because the whole time Jack Kennedy or um, George Kennedy's character has him carrying dead weight because you have to be prepared for when you're on the side of the mountain, you're going to have a pack on sure, and all that kind yeah. of a thing. You know, and it's, it gets even weird too. Like, you know, you get that uh, Native American girl, her name's George. That's out of the book, too. Who's this girl, you know? And then he immediately starts having an an affair with her in the book, and she doesn't say anything. And then, uh, you know, we could talk about later on or now, where she in the movie's helping condition Eastwood to to get into shape, and she plays into the plot, where uh, once Eastwood's character takes the assignment, he's uh, going to go talk to his old friend George Kennedy, who he used to be friends with and mountain climbed with, and he's going to be the one to get him into shape. And him and George Kennedy used to be climbing partners, and they used to refer to each other as the rapier and the mace. And they went in, up a mountain in, in um, Argentina. They, they originally, on that mission, this is all in the book, the backstory is, they were going to escort these German guys up. Uh, they didn't think it'd be a good idea, but they, the money was too good. So Eastwood and George Kennedy's character in the book get about halfway up the mountain, the Germans decide they don't want to go up anymore because you know they kind of not wuss out but they're you know but then george kennedy's character kind of realizes you know what this may be the last time i can do this because i'm getting older i'm going to push myself and the eastwood character in the book is like you know we shouldn't do this but the george kennedy character forces him they get to the top of the mountain under these crazy conditions they don't even have a good view because of the clouds and then on the way back down uh Eastwood's characters realizing what's wrong, you know, and he's like, I can't, and George Kennedy's like, I can't feel my legs. So Eastwood's character has to, this is all in the book, takes his shoes off and his, his feet are frozen almost stiff. So that for like 10 hours, he has his feet on his bare skin trying to help him get better. And you could, you could kind of see this is almost uh, the closeness. You, you realize that, that, that even though Eastwood's character is a sociopath, the closeness he has with him, he's able to uh, have this this incident happened with George Kennedy that brings them together. And once they're able to get down, George Kennedy ends up losing a couple of his toes. 
and that's why he has this limp now. So this is the backstory in the book that when they when he and then he had he he can't do anything but open a climbing school, and he opens this climbing school, which is like. Eastwood's character is like, you know, not a lot of people are going to come, and the only people who are coming are friends, and then George Kennedy doesn't want to even have them pay to, you know, it, it, they're a fight because you're a friend, you shouldn't pay me. So Eastwood's character hadn't gone in a while, and then in the movie, like we see, when he when he meets up with George Kennedy and goes to this uh, climbing school, it's not a climbing school anymore, it's this resort that he's made, yeah. you know, and that plays into later on the the motivations for George, in the movie of George Kennedy's character uh, having that turn that he has. Uh, the reveal at the end, which I've I've always loved uh, how they reveal it. And that's kind of the reason when he gets to this training camp and he starts doing his training that uh, George Kennedy was able to monetize it aside from just having it be a training school. Yeah, uh, George Kennedy's another great guy. You know, I think he got an Oscar in Cool Hand Luke. Uh, he's in uh, a whole shit ton of movies. People know him, of course, from the Naked Gun movies. He's in the airport movies. He's... Uh, uh, he, had a, he had a cop show briefly in the 70s called like the Blue Knight, I think it's called, or something like that. And uh, another one of these character actors who you'd see everywhere, yeah. you know, doing a good job with stuff. I want to say in the 90s, he was on like Dallas. Yeah. Or Falcon Crest, one of those nighttime soap operas that my mom would watch. And that's how I initially became familiar with them because I used to watch those on Friday night yeah. with my mom when I was a kid. Uh, that's how I initially became familiar with them. But, uh, yeah, and then he was in the commercials for stuff when oh, yeah, we were yeah. growing up. Yeah, and, and sadly, in real life, his daughter had a problem with drugs and had a drug addiction, much like, uh, I think, the the woman in this who ends up turning out to be his daughter, the the character George yeah. in the in the movie and in the book ends up turning out to be George Kennedy in the book or in the, in the story, his daughter. But in real life... His his real daughter had a problem with drugs so much so that his, his George Kennedy and his wife had to adopt the grandkids to become legal co- guardians of the kids to raise them because the daughter was messed up on a lot of drugs at the time, which is sad. Yeah, but he's one of these guys where again you read the book, it just sounds like it was written for George Kennedy. He's waking up drinking beer, he's drinking beer the entire time, goes to sleep drinking beer, and he's this big guy with like a barrel chest, and you know it's almost like you could see him or a Borgnine playing that kind of a character. Yeah, you know that kind of a lovable kind of strapping guy who you know is very loyal to his friends, uh, very loud or rambunctious, and can have like a whole case of beers and not be hammered. You know that kind of a thing. You know. Uh, the girl that played George, yeah, the the this Native American uh, daughter of the George Kennedy character, uh, her name is Brenda Venus, and she was a model and an actress, and I guess an ex ballerina, and she's in Forty Eight Hours. Yeah, she's cute. She was in Foxy Brown. <laughs> yeah, cute. Uh, and uh, she appeared in Playboy in the in the mid to late nineties, and then she also wrote uh, an article. Like a like a monthly article in uh, or a piece in uh, Playboy, in Playboy like, throughout the nineties. One of those kind of like uh, ask the editor, you know, stuff yeah. about like and she had written a book about uh, seducing men that was kind of a hit. Yeah, uh, but kind of most interesting thing about this whole movie is the fact that she, at some point in her youth, not as a kid, but you know, like as a, as a in her twenties or or thirties, she wrote a letter to the author Henry Miller. Yes. Who was the author of Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn and uh, Black Spring and they became pen pals and he was like in his 80s and she was you know in her 20s or 30s. She's uh, probably the age she is in this movie. And 
they became pen pals, and then she kind of became his muse, mm. and he wrote a lot about her, and, and they might even have been lovers, but he would write all these things about her, and he wrote, like, a book about her. Of course. I well, Wouldn't you if you're in your 80s and this young girl comes on? You know? Uh, and this is also the era, too, of, like, the, you know, the swinging 70s, people in the 60s, and this is, like, where, uh, you know, before, of course, you had, like, AIDS and stuff like that. People were having multiple lovers all over. You know, it's free love, almost. So, yeah. that's another thing where it's, like, you know, she's just taking her top off. You know, there's a, there's a lot of... And then also getting to the... Um, <laughs> To, to the un-PC, you know, stuff in this movie, too, where she's she's Native American. So, you know, the first joke Eastwood makes with her is like, come on, don't you want to, you know, uh, what does he say? He says, uh, don't you want to, um, uh, here's your chance to strike back against the white man, you know, and, and then uh, when she starts running him out, he's like, oh, just scalp me. And then, he, and then in the book, he even says one that's even worse. He says something like, uh, you know... Uh, I'm glad whatever happened, you know, just because he's mad, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. So it also makes like a Marlon Brando which is be- reference. Because Marlon Brando was a huge supporter of the Native Americans and I think denied even accepting an a- Oscar, I think, for, at one well, point. For Godfather, I would assume. Something like that. And then he came he up instead. Come. He sent, Didn't he send like a Native American? And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a big advocate. So that's, that's the, uh, the joke, screw, which is, extremely topical. <laughs> Screw Marlon Brando, you know, because of Marlon Brando. Yeah, Marlon Brando didn't go to the awards, but sent a, a, like a Native American woman in his place to as, accept as, the award as, as, a, as a statement. Yeah, because I think he won, like maybe he, yeah, he won for uh, Vito Colleone. I want to, yeah, I want to say it was the Godfather. Could be because it was in the seventies. Yeah. Well, he was still doing some pretty heavy projects, but then he was. This is. He but was, I don't think he won anything other than the Godfather in the seventies. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Could be wrong. But he was also, that's when he was starting to get out. I mean, it's like, you look at these actors who become eccentrics, quote unquote. If, you know, this is when Marlon Brando was starting to gain a little weight or, you know, he was uh, starting to identify with causes because he had the clout to do so. So that's the joke there. Um, It's, you know, it's it's a hard situation for a lot of these movies. Uh, Not just this one, but, you know, a couple of the ones we cover where they're so different. And there, some stuff is socially unacceptable or topics. Yeah, I mean, that's just like, you know, I mean, we can, we've talked about it before. I mean, look, some people are just not going to find it acceptable. And then there's going to be, hopefully, the majority of the listeners are going to understand uh, that, you know, this, that, uh, you it, know, us talking about movies from the past, this kind of stuff comes up. Yeah. You know, that's just the way it is. I mean, some people are going to not quite understand it uh, and and just not be able to accept it, even though it's from a, a period of time when some of these things were, were, were these things, not some of, but all these things were acceptable in a movie. Yeah. That's just the way it is. I mean, it's, you know. I'm sure it happens. It's in books. I mean, with Tom sure. Sawyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, look at the little the, yeah. the woman who wrote um, uh, Little House in the Prairie. They she she they they have an award or something, and they want to take her name off an award now because she mentioned you know 
calling Indian savages in one of her books from the 30s or so. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, so there's a lot of that now where you look, they look back and, you know, people are now, I don't know if saying be judged, but there's that whole idea of you look back at history and see how things were treated and you see that in cinema and you see that. I mean, we just brought up, I mean, we had Joel Silver and Yellow Face in the 80s. <laughs> you know what I mean? You had the Waynes Brothers doing White Face 10 years ago and White Chicks, you know, so it was, there was even in the past five years, I would say, yeah. there's stuff that is not acceptable today that was acceptable only five years ago or, or sure. tolerated, I would say, you know? So that's where you get a lot of the issues with the comedians, like the Kevin Hart, where it's like, what is now uh, acceptable as funny or not funny that you can joke about because there's a very fine line as a tightrope where it becomes offensive yeah or you know and and it's hard you know or is it is it offensive to joke about something or is it just uh tongue-in-cheek or what you know but those are for um people who are, are smarter than us uh so eastwood in developing like we said uh getting the the the, the guy hoover to help him out eastwood is also trying to trying to develop uh equipment or at least get the right equipment to be able to use so it's as lightweight as possible so he helps um or is gets people to kind of develop like a, a lightweight battery system because uh blake and i can attest to you that all this this is a, a time where you're shooting on film yeah it's equipment it's heavy you've got heavy uh camera equipment you have heavy audio equipment you have heavy film uh, that you have to shoot on you have that all has to be t- powered by batteries the batteries are just as heavy uh and blake and i used to always joke when that documentary came out that was about the uh mount everest everest yeah and that you know it was about these these climbers who got stuck up there and they almost died and it was all in this documentary and we're like well I, <laughs> the it's in that's in the documentary the documentary is not about that but the crew that is making the documentary about climbing Everest is actually the crew that saves a group of people that were stranded up there. Yeah. Um, and so that is in the documentary. But the the documentary is just about, like, climbing Everest. And it's, like, the amazing feat that these climbers are doing to climb Everest. Yeah. When you look when, at what they're, do, what they're, you know, what these guys on film are doing, and the, the dangers they're taking. And Deanna, I was like, yeah, but what about the guys that are doing this? That are filming the fucking thing. <laughs> In IMAX. Yeah. So that's... So, that's so I mean, the, the equipment has to be... 70 millimeter, right? You know, a ton, a ton bigger, more. Yeah. Uh, like, an, like an IMAX... I don't know. A what, frame. What, what do you think the, the book, the size of that book? The, the Iger Sanction book? Yeah. I'd say it's maybe two inches by... Five inches or six inches? That's like three, three by six, maybe. And <laughs> yeah, that's completely off. That's about four feet by eight feet. No, yeah. But uh, that, like, that's a single frame of IMAX film. So you think about how big that film is running through a camera. So if you, it's so basically, it's an index card. Yeah. So if you you're thinking your frame in because nowadays I don't I don't know I'm not I don't want to call people stupid or younger listeners or nothing like that, but. It goes back to last week's episode. We were talking about Galaxy Quest and people, you know, Gilligan's Island, the joke, where some people in the old days, you know, they might thought Gilligan's Island was real because people just, it's not that they're stupid. Yeah. They just don't realize the magic behind or the innards and outers of the process. So in this context, people will take for, for granted kind of the technology that you have in the palm of your hand in a camera. You can shoot your entire a movie on your, ca- on your phone. Or, you know, we went to space uh, to the moon with technology that was like in a one of those uh, calculator, yeah, one of those Texas Instruments calculator, you know, and that's nothing nowadays. The computing power. So back in the old days, up until uh, the turn of the century, two thousand, when Blake and I went to college, we shot all on film. You would traditionally you'd shoot 
film cameras, you shoot film. You'd have to get all that film then developed. Like you have to, in the old days, get you know your pictures developed. Separately, you'd have a sound recording equipment that would, that would record sound. Originally, it would be reel-to-reel. So it'd be like, you know, almost uh, tapes on a reel. And then gradually that would you know, that was to dat, you know, digital. But yeah. you'd have to then transfer all that. You'd have to sync it up. That's why you have people with clap. So it was a long process that yeah. now. And we were with 16 millimeter, which the equipment is so much smaller yeah. than 35 millimeter. Yeah. Which is it, what they shot. Einstein shot on, and not to mention the IMAX equipment. <laughs> they shot that Everest documentary. Uh. Yeah, and you know that stuff. We, we were working with equipment that was twenty years old. Change uh, magazines and the yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> trying to try to put new a new roll of film in a magazine. You can't and, feel and your a fingers in a changing bag you know, outside of a mountain. Yeah, when you, it's dark, you, you know your your hands are numb and this kind of a thing, and it's 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 a harrowing experience, and it's then interesting to to to. to compartmentalize all that and all that technology now is just on your phone you can hit record yeah. and you no longer have to shoot film shoot audio marry them together it's all just yeah. it's like video the advent well, of tape shoot an entire climb up a mountain with gopros attached to your head yeah and then which they, are, you know i don't know the size, size of a, like a <laughs> like a fitbit or something like yeah, that or yeah. a watch face you know that's how the, the, how small these cameras got nowadays so it's amazing the technology turn so uh so eastwood was trying to minimize the yeah, the equipment, of, the amount of equipment, and the size and weight of the equipment, and as the much people as, as well going up there. And so, you know, the scenes when they shot, when they climb up that totem pole, which is the highest um, area in in Monument Valley, it's like the half the size of the Empire State Building or something like yeah, that. Yeah, which is freaky for me. I have a height. I have a problem with fear of heights, where it's like. I'm not. I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling off of them. <laughs> yeah. So every time I'm looking, I'm always. I get a little queasy. So just, just. Yeah, I mean, I have some a of the balcony, stuff, and I'm not comfortable even going. That's out you. On my when I, yeah. When I was the... when I was when I went out on your balcony, I was like, I was. I strapped myself. I put a pinion in, <laughs> and then I strapped myself in with with a grappling hook and just to look over. And it's and yours is all concrete and steel. It's not like it's going to fall, but yeah. it's just when it gets so high, it's like, eh, you know, I worry things are going to fall off. So you could tell when they. They had to talk to the Navajo Nation, whose property they were on for this Monument Valley stuff, and they at first didn't want them to film on this totem pole, but Eastwood makes the agreement where, you know, if we go up and we have the climbers who are going up take out all the uh, previous equipment that's been left, the spikes you spike in to, to, to connect yourself with, if we take all that off when we go up, you know, will you let us and we'll be the last people to, you know, to, so they agree. So they have pro- professional climbers climb up it and that you could, you, you know, you get for the long shots. And I think there's some close-ups of Eastwood doing it. And then when they get to the top, they helicopter George Kennedy and Eastwood to the top of it. And then when you look at it, I mean, it's only like 15 feet or 20 feet around. The, the, and that would even be... Yeah, the surface of the top of Yeah, that. when they get up there and the joke about, like, Eastwood with the backpack and George Kennedy's like, you want a beer? And he's like, who's got beer up here? He's like, you brought it, asshole. You know? <laughs> and uh, when they, they, they do one of these... I mean, there's a couple of these shots in here. Uh, you know, you do the the... the Pull back shot, zoom back from a helicopter, and you realize a lot of helicopter shots. Yeah, well, Eastwood's a big helicopter fan. At the end of the movie, you have that patented Eastwood helicopter shot back, which you see in a lot of the Dirty Harry movies. Dirty Harry movies usually end with the the helicopter. It's almost like the contemplative. But I mean, I understand the in this movie, the last shot in this, where it's you know you want to see him come back, and then you see the mountain, and you end on the mountain. But here for. Uh, the Monument Valley bit on the totem pole uh, little thing, you could tell that he's up there. Uh, it's Eastwood, George Kennedy, and probably a cameraman, and I bet you they're shooting on, like, CP-16s or something, 35, where it's shooting sound at the same time. 
so they don't yeah. have to have a, a guy oh, they there. Might ADR you know, in it. There's, there's yeah. definitely stuff in it that sounded ADR. Yeah, some of the Eastwood dialogue they, sounds they ADR. Afterwards. I mean, even stuff where he's in the first. So they hire him to do the first assassination to get. It's a two man team that evidently set the guy up at the beginning of the movie Wormwood. So they hire Eastwood to. to he's, he's. They said we have two. I'm going to call them hits, sanctions for you. And Eastwood's like, I'm only going to do one. And usually it's, you, you, he, he gets paid 10000 per thing. He goes, I want 20000 just for the one. So they, they uh, okay. So, they, so Eastwood goes and does it. And even that scene where Eastwood climbs up a drain pipe is kind of too much for me. You know? A little Spider-Man action. Yeah, you know, Eastwood goes up a drain pipe. And, like, and then you see that later on where, like, in the line of fire, they have, there's a scene where, where he, there's a sequence where they're running after John Malkovich and Eastwood misses and is hanging. He did all that himself. Where they, I mean, of course, they had him strapped in, but he hung up. He's in, in, what, 65 years old at that point. He's hanging up on the side of a building for six or eight hours. You know, So you see him in, in Zurich here. He climbs up this thing. And that's funny, too, because this is the only movie uh, where you hear Eastwood do another voice. He does when he's the delivery man. <laughs> you know, That's the first time you ever, you ever hear Eastwood doing any other kind of a inflection on his voice or whatever like that. Yeah. And uh, he ends up killing the, the. And it's, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a stereotypical, it's, yeah, uh, gay aspect. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 got Another a little, it's got a, like a lisp to the non uh, to the non PC. <laughs> you know, he's got a little. He's, he puts a little lisp on uh, for the sequence with the, with a hat, and then he he ends up killing the guy in that sequence. He gets paid his money, and then on the flight back, he meets a stewardess, and we learn later on this is a whole plan. She uh, comes on to him, kind of. He, he invites her back. And in the book, it's very much, it's a, a little longer of a courtship. They kind of fly through this, where in the book, he kind of likes to do something different about her, you know, and then uh, she realizes it too, and then they, they make love, and then she's even worried about, you know, I know you're, then, so then he, he opens up to her and shows her his, his paintings, which is something he never does, where in the movie, they kind of make it like, you know, oh, let me, you know, it's just like, He's almost showing it off where yeah. in the book he's very, he does, nobody knows. Later on, she's very worried. She's like, you know, I know you collect things. You know, was, was I your first black woman? And he's like, no, that's not a problem for me. Don't, you know, and it's, and it's kind of a, this, this love's grown upon. And, and then that starts making him question his choices in life. And he's having feelings he's never felt before. Uh, you know, he, mm-hmm. so he starts realizing at a very young age, you know, he can get things by having sex with women. But he doesn't have the connection regular people have. But he doesn't play it so much as the sociopath in this. He's kind of just more of like, you get the beginning in the movie where he's at the college, and it's very much like the Indiana Jones situation where the girls are into him. Yeah. And this is, again, uh, from the book where the girl asks him, you know, is there anything I can do to help my grade out? And he says, you know, do you, do you live alone or whatever? Are you free tonight? Well, why don't you go home and study? And he yeah. slaps her ass, and then he says, study your little ass off, but don't study it all off, <laughs> you know? Uh, it, 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 you could tell that these, you know, these these women are, and then he's in the book. He's also making judgments where he doesn't, you know, he doesn't assign himself to a political party, and he has a certain outlook about things. Where uh, the college is very liberal, where he goes, so he kind of spoon feeds the liberalism to the students because they know they'll like it, or even makes jokes about it, and they like him even more. And then he'll make fun of, say, the conservatives that he comes in contact Republicans to, and you get a little in the movie, a little politics where I think Eastwood at one point talks about. You know, uh, when you realize what the MacGuffin is in the movie, which is this microfilm, and the microfilm is this blueprints for this kind of like uh, this new kind of biological warfare. Uh, Jemima Brown 
she wants him to, she thinks it's morally and ethically right for him to tank this assignment because we can't let this stuff get into the bad guy's hands. Where the Eastwood character is like, well, we have it. So doesn't that tell you something? Or we're just, this, he tries to make the connection that, you know, it doesn't matter who has it. You know, this is, this is how the game is played. You know, we have it. We're just as bad as them. It's all the fog of war. Yeah. You know, you get a little of that in this too. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, she's like, well, yeah, I mean, basically. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, if we, you know, that's, it's, it's, you know, against the Geneva Convention, you know, we don't want them to have it. What are we doing with it? Yeah. We're not even supposed to have it. And then, you know, we're taking a moral high ground that we're worried about them getting it when we have it in the first place. And then yeah. she's like, well, wouldn't you rather us have it than them? And he's at this point, like, who cares? You know, we're still doing our patriotic duty. You know, you can kind of see there's hints of he, this is all just a kind of a joke to him. And that's emphasized a little more in the book, like I said, where he's got this church and he has the the, the bar at the altar. And when she comes over, she's like, I can't drink from up there because it's just too sacrilegious. It's weird for me. It's kind of emphasized. Um, so the idea of shooting this all on Iger and going there, you know, Iger has this huge reputation of being this terrible mountain for, for mountain climbers. And there's the different faces of Iger. And then there's the north face of Iger. And I didn't realize until doing research for this book that there was a movie from the early 2000s called North Face. And it's about one of the real missions of people trying to conquer the north face of Iger. And um, back when the uh, Christians discovered the Swiss area, these mountains, they were naming the different mountains, and they named the, one of the mountains called uh, Young, Young Frau, which is like young woman, and then they named the second one Monk or Munch off of like uh, the, the Christian monks, and then they named Eiger in German means ogre, and it's just how disastrous it is and how crazy it looks. And all these mountains have been successfully climbed in the past, except the north face of Iger. And it was only because of the technology where back in the day, people were only just properly mountain climbing with their hands and arms. And uh, the history, which you have in the book of Iger, reads like a horror movie. And this part is is non-fictional in real life where you get to the 1930s and the only thing that hasn't been climbed yet is this north face of Iger. And... uh, the technology has finally got there where we have these things called pittons and graps where we have the technology we can actually start physically climbing. So the first, there's this first team of Germans in the mid-30s who Hitler, you know, says, you know, you know we can do anything. The first man who can climb Iger, I'll give a gold, a gold medal to. So these two guys go and try to climb Iger. And uh, the hotels at the bottom, they're there also. They have all these, they end up calling them Iger birds in the movie. But these, these people come, there's this whole sub fandom of people who come and just watch these climbing because they want to see people fall to their deaths and they want to see you know it's like anything it's like going to the circus or like going to you know so yeah, they kind of hint at that in the book a little bit or in the movie i mean in the in the movie yeah that these people fly and in if to, they're lucky they'll see somebody die <laughs> yeah and then and this is this is a real thing so you had all, all these people here to watch these two climbers in the 30s go up to try to do Iger, and they get to a certain point the first night and this storm comes in, and they get completely get snowed over. The next day, they try to go up a little higher. They can't. They get stuck under this ravine uh, in, in in their hooks, and they're trying to survive. And another storm comes through, and come to find out, after getting someone in, in an airplane to go by, these two guys froze 
in their uh, rigs against the mountain. And they were up there for like a year, their bodies frozen there for everyone to see. So then in the next year, another team tries to go up and they, they try to retrieve the bodies. Then they get to this tra- traverse pass, which they end up naming after a guy. They end up dying by avalanche. And I think that's what that North Face movie's based on from 2008, th- that team. And for a couple of years, it's just, it's just um, and it's a, a theme that also you hear climbers talk about, but it's in that movie, The Mountain, who I, I said I watched earlier from 1956, where, you know, the mountain's going to kill you or the mountain doesn't want me. This whole thing about you against the mountain, you know, yeah, man yeah. versus nature. So it, it's not until, like, I think the 50s or something that finally the, someone is successfully able to climb that north face of Iger because of all this, the, the pitfalls of if you're climbing, it's just a sheer face you're going up, but also what ends up happening at night is that everything will freeze up on top of Iger, and in the morning with the sun, everything will start melting. So all these rocks and snow that have that have been stuck over at night starts coming loose, and they just start raining down. So you get pelted with avalanches and storms, and you know uh, continuously. So that's what makes it so hard to be able to get up this damn thing. And you've had people who they'll get stuck and waiting for rescue parties. They end up like breaking their teeth just trying to eat the side of the mountain the glacier to get something in their stomach so it's it's almost like a horror movie these people who who are obsessed with trying to conquer this thing yeah so it has a very notorious past uh the mountain in real life of people actually trying to uh climb it my brother-in-law is a climber he's climbed i didn't know before i watched the movie he had climbed mont blanc which is the movie in that uh, which is the mountain in the movie The Mountain from 1956. He's been to Iger. He hasn't climbed Iger because it was just technically too hard uh, for him. But uh, they they do have in 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 uh, the mountain. They've made this railroad. They've carved carved into the mountain. They get you to the top. And what they did is they have these chutes that were originally for when they were making the mountain to be able to throw the to, to throw debris out and get ventilation that they ended up keeping for people for lookouts you can go and look as well as they've actually come to help people out in situations where people get stuck you can get people you know it's, it's a good access point to the top of the mountain so if you go to Iker uh, in Switzerland you can take this tram that that's inside the mountain up and then they stop at various points and you can go out and he was saying where you know when he, back when Eastwood filmed there these things used to be open, so you can go like kind of look or look out. Where now they've they've put really thick plastic protective glass there or plastic, so you can't. Yeah. But then over the years of the snow, snow and stone debris coming down, it's really uh, you know hit them and scratched them. So on some days you can't even see out of it. You know it's kind of hard. And then you get back into the tram, it takes you to the top. You get to the top of the mountain, and they did this well before the North Face was even uh, climbed. They had this yeah. all in place. You can then. You're at 10,000 feet at that height, so you can tell the air is very thin. You can climb another 2,000 feet yourself, like walking, and there's a pub up top, and you can drink up there. It's almost like what we saw in the Her Majesty's Secret Service. You have that whole big thing where Kelly Zavallis is in. So you can go up there, and you can have a drink up there, and he's drank up there, and uh, he ended up almost getting killed in in Peru on a mountain, which we can get into another time. Uh, But it's, it's, it's an amazing, for me, I'm a pussy. Right, I don't. Uh, there's situations I've always in life, and it's it's you know I guess this is the philosophy of people. I never did hard drugs. I never I I, I did never wanted to do acid because I was worried I'd be the guy that wouldn't come back. Yeah, yeah. I'd be blue boy from Dragnet. And there's other situations like that where it's like you know, um, not judging people, but it's it's when you're putting yourself in that situation, like mountain climbing. It's like you know, and then it's kind of 
it's 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 weird. Some people, you know, you, you it's one thing skateboarding or, or 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 you know biking or whatever. But when you're doing these perilous stuff where it's you can die doing it, or you other people could die trying to save you. It's 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 an interesting you know thing to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, or you know. I don't know. To each his own, you know. <laughs> you know, and, it, and, it, and it's, it, you know, if it, if that's how you get your yayas out, that's great. You know, it's just I don't think I'd ever be able to do it. You know, I mean, unless it was safe. But just it's, you think about how, uh, how fit you think you are, but then you get into a situation like that where you're literally on the side of a mountain holding on to stuff, and you have, you know, you're you're relying well, on. The, I mean, I'm, I'm so, like, I'm so preoccupied with you know other people you know like even like like walking out down the street like I'll you know I, I'm doing like acrobatics to get out of the way of people oh just who are in their own world looking on the phone yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying not to bump into people yeah you know nobody gets out of the way in New York City and uh, I'm like, how come I'm the only one that's like bending over, like f- doing flips, trying to get, get out, out of the way of people? I started nobody. The... People sway, uh, sways out of the way of themselves, and uh, I'm so, you know, opening doors for people. Like I'm so preoccupied with everybody else that I would never do it because if something happened, I would never want somebody to have to come help you be the one to come <laughs> and help me i feel like it's a very selfish thing yeah to put yourself in a position where somebody else has to risk their life in the, in a situation that's i i feel that way about the people who are like not storm chasers but, but like, like the, the people when there's an evacuation yeah they stay and then they're like oh we're gonna just tough it out and then suddenly you're underwater and people yeah, and then now somebody else has to come yeah the coast guard ass. has to come get you you know and then it's like you're mad at them because they haven't come yet well it's like well we told you to leave you know there's there, there's 20 feet of water on the ground now. You're on the roof of your house. <laughs> you know, it's one thing people say, well, you know, we couldn't leave or we didn't have access, which sometimes I find that hard to believe. I mean, if they're giving you, they're telling you, get out now, this is how you can do it, go now. And then people are like, well, we're going to just tough it out. And then suddenly, you know, they're in this perilous situation, like on an island or something where they need to be evacuated. I find that very selfish, certainly, where now rescuers have to, like, not worry about people who are actually in harm's way but people who have purposely left themselves in harm's yeah, way yeah. you know so uh it's it's an interesting sport i mean it, and it's been around for what the i mean i the, like you i mean i i mean like you were saying you know you you never did things because you'd be the one guy and i'm the same way like i was brought up with like a paranoid mother yeah, as was my as was who I. was like you know so i initially like my instinct is to never Take, like I won't even drink something laying in bed. Like I wouldn't even bring anything into the bedroom because it's like I, well, I'm going to spill it. Yeah, <laughs> true. Like, why take that chance when I can just leave it <laughs> on the table and get up and go to it instead of bringing it into bed and taking the risk of spilling something in my bed? Yeah, you know, like I, I'm not a risk taker. I don't even. <laughs> well, when I was little, when I you used know, to, why why chance anything? When I was little, and I used to uh, smoke cigarettes back in my early days, I would I wouldn't smoke in bed. I don't want to die like Jack Can- uh, Cassidy. Yeah. Like I you don't know? even own a gun because like I don't what. Accidents happen, yeah. you know. Like yeah. I don't want to accidentally shoot myself. I don't want to accidentally s- somebody find it and shoot themselves. Yeah. I don't want to get so pissed off that like, I end up sh- shooting somebody in a fit of anger. Like I don't. Well, need that's that. certainly a situation don't, you don't want to put yourself need, in. I don't need the temptation if you're if you're capable of that. Uh, 
So, you know, they... Right, like most people that live in New York City are capable of that. Yeah, I know. You get, you get, you get so, you get so uh, fed people, up with it. People like, I can't live here anymore. Yeah. Certainly with me, yeah, I've, I've turned into a completely different person. I mean, 10, 12 years of being in New York City commuter where you have to deal with, you know, that's a... I mean, this is a, a tangent for another day, but it's like, how how long does it wear on you before you become that that gruffed and battled oh, yeah. I pessimistic mean, people do get to a breaking point I mean we had you, you, you don't know who I'm talking about but you know the person where they just got up and they left New York because they were having bouts where they were like standing on the subway track and just being like what if I just fucking walk off this platform onto the track and they're like I gotta get out of here like this shit <laughs> like the city is taking its toll it's, and, they, you know, and they just moved that back out and they never came back it's hard you know it's it's hard for people to kind of understand and I'm not saying people aren't capable of understanding that but you when you're when you have a like this every day having to deal with people who just don't give a shit like Blake's saying if you hold the door for somebody and people don't thank you they don't hold the door for you or my pet peeve is when it's pouring out people walking around with these umbrellas and then I end up whacking their umbrellas because they're going to hit me in the eye with their pokey part yeah, yeah. You know, they and then they get all fucking pissed yeah. off I mean I know I have a friend of mine who actually tries to break him when they go by because it's you know that I just knock him out of the way because you're not paying you know now the new thing well it's not new but since everyone's on their phone no one's looking up so you have this increase all over the country and funny enough it's Florida that leads in this. I just saw a stat of people getting uh, hit by cars. And uh, I, I only because I just um, saw this at my day job, stats where it's like so many people get hit a month that you could fill a, a football stadium and or killed, you know, or that, maybe that's a year. But there's a shitload, and it's a lot of it now is because people are just walking out into traffic on their phones, looking down or whatever, you know, just stupid stuff. Where you've seen, we start to see these videos of someone on their phone at a mall, and they yeah. walk into the fountain, or yeah, you know, or walk into like a stop sign, on yeah, the, you know, the sidewalk. And I'm guilty of that too. Once I was trying to talk up a girl, uh, you know, uh, one night, and I was looking at her, and I walked into a pole, you know, because I was looking at her trying, to, you know, and it's it's just it's so when you're on the receiving end of that, and you're someone trying to get from A to B, especially during the holidays season and people aren't you know cognizant of you or that it's just it can get really grating on you really quickly and then having to deal with that day in and day out this commute on a subway or on a train and just people aren't having manners i mean i'm a very manners oriented person i try to be very nice to people and I, for some reason i expected a return which is stupid i know but, <laughs> but you know it, it, it just it just grates on you you know and, and i that's my thing is treat people how you want to be treated so you can which see is why exactly like climbing a mountain yeah, you could see why people kind of uh, end up getting mad about that. So, uh, let's see. Kennedy, George Kennedy uh, is in this because the year before, another movie which I, I'm a really big fan of. Uh, funny enough, we're doing this movie last year we did, or maybe two years ago we did The Beguiled. We're doing like all these Eastwood B-sides. Uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot from 1974, which is I think Michael uh, Cimino or Camino's first uh, directorial debut. That had um, Eastwood, George Kennedy, and um, what's his name? Um, uh, John, Juliet, Juliet Lewis, her father's in that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forget, uh, I forget his uh, Maybe Jonathan Lewis? Or I forget his name, Yeah, too. he's in that as well. And uh, song by Paul Williams. George Ken- Eastwood meets George Kennedy in that, has a good time. So when they're casting this movie, he's like, hey, bring George Kennedy back. We liked him. So he comes here. Uh, <clears throat> like we said, we had... Uh, Jack, um, 
Cassidy's in this. Uh, I th- I'm thinking, is there anybody else that are, are of, of particular? Uh, Vontana McGee is the uh, African American woman who I think plays a really good role in this. Yeah, it's hard. You know, you you kind of you you have to take what you're dealt with. So the character is kind of you know, there's not much depth there. Except being like, you know, and then it's almost what some points the motivation, your head over heels because, you know, Eastwood's hot or whatever. But, you know, is nah, it? I mean, she does a good job yeah. of giving it some kind of, you know, making it a character. I mean, she's got more character than she could have most had, I of guess. the Bond girls have. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and you, you, know, you, humorize, you humorize with her too. And then you, it's, it's, you kind of get that. Yeah. I think it could have been done differently where there could have been more of a, of Eastwood turns cold to her because of the of the uh, what do you call that the betrayal <laughs> the betrayal thank you you know that could have been played up a little more of that that you know there's so much trust in she people. doesn't tell him that she's working for the same people that he's working for yeah so when he comes back from the initial hit he meets her on the plane they end up spending the night together and then in the morning she's taking the money and this is again all from the book she's taking the money from that he just got paid uh, from that hit back. So now he's forced to go back to see Dragon to get his money. And then while he's there, that's when he's a lord. Listen, we need you to do one more hit. It's on a mountain, Iger. You know, you're a mountain climber, so we need you on this. Besides that, we know we're going to pay you. I think at first they're saying we'll pay you double your rate. And then, you know, uh, you can avenge your friend because you find out your friend was uh, Andre yeah. Bach and then and we'll Miles Mel Cassidy. Yeah, too. and he says sure, and then he's also then which is not in the book. They kind of lean on him with the with the IRS, and he kind of makes a deal with the IRS. So that's when he goes out to the to the to uh, Arizona to train. He meets George Kennedy there, and you have that whole sequence there. Um, but it was you're talking about the betrayal of Jemima Brown. Yeah, in that, and then he her, thought this was a innocent. Yeah. Trist that he and just it turns out that and he, he was kind, he feels like he was set up and he feel and he and he almost too is that he he was quote unquote falling for a little bit yeah. you know it was just it wasn't just like a, a fling he thought there could be something there with the two of them uh, and I guess for the era it is it is kind of a media role this is right in the 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 time of the exploitation films of the seventies yeah, so she was in Blackula yeah and you know, uh, Shaft in Africa yeah. And then later in the 80s, she's in Repo Man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, she's, she plays a good role here. And then uh, music by John Williams, which is, this may be the only kind of a spy movie John Williams does. I think it might be. And the theme for years have always stuck with me. I used to whistle it. I love the theme. And, and reading this, I, 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 I kind of put two and two together. There are kind of other cues in this that are kind of Lalo Schifrini, jazzy funk. Yeah. You know? And John Williams said that he knew that Eastwood was a big jazz fan and the connection of Lalo Schifrin to Eastwood movies. So he jazzed threw in jazz some cues up for. And they sound great. They got to have that kind of jazz funk kind of thing. But then even just the. Maybe when we did. uh, When we did uh, Towering Inferno and there's like that band. In the ballroom, yeah, you know all that stuff was written by Williams. There's like oh, a jazz yeah, yeah, band yeah. playing. I mean, he comes from a classical, but also kind of a jazz. Oh no, now. yeah, yeah. Not that he can do it, but I is there. Uh, your this is far more your territory than mine. In his in his filmography or or work, even in TV, 
he is usually much more of the classical kind of uh, composing. I think that's what he's aside known from for, sure, doing yeah. cues like uh, you know the the jazz band playing this song in this movie or that you know. So I this th- is a kind of a semi departure for him to do some kind of stuff like this. Yeah, I mean that's not it's what he's most known for is class is obviously like the big classical scores like you know Star Wars and Superman and Indiana Jones and stuff like that. But he comes from a more of a eclectic background. I mean he played piano. I want to say he played piano like in some famous band, mm-hmm. like more of a jazz band. And, you know, some of the stuff that he did for things like Lost in Space definitely had more of a kind of a Johnny jazz, Williams. Kind of a hit. Oh, that's true. Jazzy yeah. <laughs> sound and that's, to it. We brought that up a couple of years ago, or maybe it wasn't a couple of years ago, just that you think about how far back his career goes, or people yeah. immediately think of. Jaws, or you know, Close Encounters, or Star Wars. Where yeah, it's yeah. Like he's he had in been the working 60s. for a long time. Yeah, to, and like, I think he was TV. playing in orchestras for other, playing piano and stuff for other composers. Yeah, before he started, before he kind of hit it big, or or at least got, you know, a real career going where he could make a living as a as a film or t- and television uh, per, uh, composer on his own. Yeah, um, so he he does a pretty good score here, and then. Uh, when you're at the when he's there training Eastwood, like we said, we have the Jack the Jack Cassidy kind of stuff. Uh, Jack has his little dog, which in the the movies this Yorkie. Uh, interesting interactions with everybody, and then uh, we have the George character, the female character that's training Eastwood. They end up sleeping together, or it's hinted that they've been sleeping together for a while, and she doesn't speak. And they kind of rush through this in the movie. Uh, in only just one scene where they make love or have sex and afterward she's on his back rubbing his back and she injects him with a needle and then you know she starts beating the crap out of him and then he, he succumbs and he wakes up and George Kennedy uh, his character Ben has come and saved the day and they've got her tied down and what we end up happening is um, I guess the spoiler alert of all this we're going to find out later on which uh, again I think is it's done brilliantly is that George Kennedy is the person that Eastwood's going after yeah He's the one which uh, is the, the second person he's supposed to be killing. And you hear at the beginning of the movie when that guy is initially killed, there's two guys there. You hear one guy whisper, why'd you have to kill him? And he's like, shut up. And, you know, so you have an idea that, the, that it wasn't planned. So Eastwood, and it's hard because me reading the book, I knew the whole time what the payoff was going to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, but they're setting it up like, uh, you know, it's going to be one of the people in the mountain team. Is somebody on, limping there? Because in the book, it's set up that whoever did it, when the murder happens, the other guy throws up. That's the George Kennedy character, Ben. And there he's seen limping away. So the belief is that he got hurt during the confrontation. But so that's why Eastwood the entire time or the Hemlock character is trying to figure out who has a limp and then like, oh, one of the climbers had a limp because he cut himself. So we're trying to figure out who it is. So getting back to the the, the, uh, Native American woman, George, what we find out later, which is in the book, which they don't ever explain here, is that George Kennedy's character is behind Eastwood's character getting drugged. Yeah. Because... Uh, do they explain it? Am I just missed it? Or no, they don't explain okay. it because you don't because you don't know it's him until until the end, the last five minutes. Of the yeah, <laughs> so it's it's always blamed that oh, it's it's um, Jack Cassidy's character doing it because what it is is he gets a half load of something, not morphine, but something else to knock him out. And the justification is once he's knocked out, Jack Cassidy's character, who is a drug dealer in, in huge bulk, will come in, OD him, and then that'll be oh, he just chalked, chalked up to an accident. 
it, what you find out the motivation is here is that uh, Jack Cassidy knows who it is, and that's what he says to Eastwood. I can tell you, if you let me go and forgive me, you know, yeah, I will tell let you. Let me live. Don't come after me. Yeah, I will tell you who the person you're looking for. Eastwood or the Eastwood character in the next scene tells George Kennedy that, you know, but Kennedy's character supposedly only thinks he's like an art teacher. So, uh, well, on the face of it, he thinks he's only an art teacher, but then you find out he knew the whole time because he's involved. So George Kennedy ends up setting the Eastwood character up and making it look like Jack Kennedy, Jack Cassidy's character so that Eastwood would then go kill the Jack Cassie character before he's able to yeah, yeah, tell him tell who him. it is. So that's the motivation there in the book is that. And it's done the same way where he brings them out into the desert. There's the old uh, trick, which I've, full disclosure, used a couple times on people with the headlights. You turn yeah. your lights on to get people off your ass. Uh, that's out of the book as well. And then uh, Eastwood kills the, the wrestler character. And then in the book, the the, the where I, I like it in Jet the Jack Cassidy character that he's like look what you did to this beautiful man I like that that he had but in the book he doesn't care he's like look you've ruined my suit this is the only one I have of this it was tailor made he's more worried about that and then he leaves him out there and uh, I think it's a brilliant device of how they do it you know uh, a plot twist in the movie and uh, he's when he realizes that Eastwood's gonna leave him out there in the middle of nowhere he's like shoot me don't leave me here and in the book, he leaves the dog with him, but in the movie, the dog comes. And I've always thought that was funny. Where Eastwood then looks down at him, and he's like, "You're not saying that now, you little prick," you know. Yeah, yeah. And he and he and he leaves. But in the book, this is one of the like I was saying. The only things that are really different is uh, he leaves the dog with him, and then when they find him, he, the Jack Cassidy character ended up eating the dog, you know, because he was so hungry. Uh, but it's like you know, he's very. Eastwood's character says when he's leaving in the book, when he's leaving the scene, he's looking in the rearview mirror, he sees him like fix his hair and gets him, you know, he's always prim and proper. But there's this overarching feeling that it's, uh, I don't know how to best explain this, but he's the real only rat person who's saying like the logical. Yeah. You know, he's the one saying like, don't you. He's presented as being this bad guy, but he's really kind of the voice of reason yeah <laughs> and, he's, of and he's saying you know uh you know i i didn't mean to you know he's he gets set up because in the, like we t- in the book it's different that's the setup and eastwood's best friend the character gets killed in his arms and it's because of the jack cassidy character setting him up so that's why he has this revenge plot so and then when they try to justify it, a lot of the dialogue he's like i didn't know that was going to happen but this is our business this is what happens you know yeah. he's trying to explain you know just because you have these 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 platitudes of being wronged we're all assassins this is the game you know so uh it's just interesting so then that's how the demise of the jack cassidy character and then when they get to Iger, they do the last bit they shoot up on the eye on the mountains the whole hotel all location uh when the the second day of filming uh, you were on a you were on the george kennedy plot twist oh so that. yeah so then that was the, that's the end up ends up happening is you find out that later on at the end of the movie that it's george kennedy that was that was behind this because of this great little piece of uh near the end when everything kind of falls apart you you see when he when yeah, he yeah. when kennedy's trying to rescue eastwood he's got a limp and then he's had a limp the whole movie and eastwood knows why he has a limp because he was there like i said the backstory is that he got his his toes cut off from frostbite well, you, you know they do they address it a couple of times. That's why he says he'll never climb again. Yeah, yeah. And but then, they kind of it gets up. He's like, well, you know, because the the cold really messes with my frostbite. You know, it's like his limp is greater. Yeah, in Switzerland than it was in because it's, and that's when it kind of triggers and that Eastwood notices at that moment. I I mean maybe it's because of 
years of conditioning of watching movies, but like I, I knew that he was. I'd never seen this movie before. You've never seen this movie? No, and I knew George Kennedy from from, from, from like somewhere in the middle of the movie. It's like, oh, it's it's Kennedy, Kennedy. It's because how they're they're framing it. Yeah, just I don't know. Just kind of like that would be the logical twist. Yeah, yeah. For me, I never. If you're gonna keep it up in the air. Yeah, for the entire movie, like. Eastwood doesn't know who he's after because the the company that he works for can't find the information. Yeah, they're they're having the 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 search department try to search it. So the whole time in the movie and book, East was hoping he's not going to have to get up onto the mountain. But he's going to find out before they actually has to go up there, so he can take care of business before he has to. Yeah, climb. and then as well as if he gets up there, he doesn't want to be doing it while he's up there trying to kill somebody up on the side of a mountain. That's just crazy talk, you know. And, and I mean, it, you could maybe get away with it better as it looking like an accident but while you're doing that and it's too it's funny too because in the movie or in the book Eastwood's supposed to be like 37 38 our age 39 and he's too old to climb and this is what um, Ben keeps trying to tell him like you're too old to climb look how old I was when I did the Argentina thing look what happened to me and the Argentina thing like I said it's sad because once he loses his you know he made it to the top of the mountain uh, in the book he loses his toes the George Kennedy character and then they talk about uh, you know, he would never climb again. And then in the book, they say, like, they never felt, they neither felt elation nor accomplishment as they watched the mountain, you know, uh, as they flew away from it. They didn't feel proud for making it up there. Those German guys didn't feel shame for stopping. It just, it was just, just, it was nothing. It was kind of like uneventful that, it, yeah. that they went through all this for nothing. So that's why he ends up opening a climbing school to be able to help people climb. So later on in the movie, when, when you know, it, the two two is put together there, it's it's kind of a plot twist for some people. I mean, I guess I saw this when I was like 10 or 11. I mean, I imagine it is. I mean, you know, it's meant to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. This is I'm sure maybe back then more so, but I would imagine a lot of people would. Well, get it now. I mean, I happen to be, I don't know, like I'm pretty good at, at it. Yeah. You know, I talked when we did Color of uh, Night. Night, I talked about how that, like, for some reason it's so blatantly obvious and I didn't get it when I first saw it when I was, you know, in the 90s. But, you know, there's movies that you and I have seen where it's like, oh, that guy's in this movie? He's the killer. Yeah, we've done that. Yeah, and I'm usually good at that kind of a thing, too. There's, there's movies where I've, like, literally looked at posters. Yeah. And be like, oh, he's in this? Oh, he's the killer. He's, he's, he's the bad know, guy. This is the movie hasn't even out yet. I can well, tell you the killer. You know, I think it's a, it's a little more disguised here where in a lot of movies like you and I famously The Bone Collector where you have the guy who ends up being the killer the Bone Collector they cast it as a recognizable actor so that's a lot of reason like Law and Order it's yeah. like Columbo you know Columbo walks onto the scene and he goes to the officer in uniform he's like who's the star who's guest star this week <laughs> oh it's Vincent Price okay hey he's the killer you know it's like it's it's like sometimes you, you pick him out because you're like there's no reason they would cast Joe Blow as you know yeah, uh, yeah. orderly number two unless he's the murderer but in this movie, it's they, tr- you know, it's, there's a little deception here. The, the people that they, when they assemble the climbing team, there's a whole, it's a great dichotomy within the climbing team. You have this guy who has a wife, uh, he's he's a little too old to climb. He's kind of doing it as like he wants to get one last climb done, but he's also doing it really to impress his wife. Yeah. We, like, also like a little bit of a mid- middle-aged crisis, I think. Yeah, and his wife is, uh, she's she's screwing everybody she can. She ends up, she she throws herself at Eastwood, Eastwood or the, in the book, denies her. She ends up sleeping with the, the German guy, Carl, which, we, which is revealed in the movie. But in the book, you realize at one point that uh, they're kind of the same person, Eastwood, character and the woman realize they have the same issue so then then they become not a threat for each other they don't you know 
they, they, they have the same outlook of like sex and love. And there is a scene in the book that's not in the movie where the night before they're about to leave, that character, the husband, comes into Eastwood's room with a gun and then he turns the light on, he doesn't shoot him, and he and he realizes that the guy's mad because he thinks that the guy's sleeping, he thinks Eastwood is sleeping with his wife, and Eastwood's like, I'm not sleeping with your wife, you know? But it, so it's there's a lot of red herrings that are thrown out. Yeah. So you have that guy, there's another guy who's the German who wants to be the natural leader, who's kind of real assy, who he's the one that invents this new way that's never been done to go up, traverse the mountain, which is kind of unheard of. He wants a new path. Yeah, he get up there, and which uh, people, you know, there's there's kind of a risk of you can do it or not. And then the the third person rounding out the team is this who's a professional climber, who uh, it's kind of like has the aptitude of Eastwood's character for climbing. So when you once you get up on the mountain, you have some kind of like oh, it's it's a little of like who who can it be, and uh, you have. In the movie, it's shown that like it's the leader Carl, who's the guy up top, kind of causes the little rock slide that comes down and ends up hitting the guy, the married guy on the head, because he's a little slow going, and then he gets hit on the head by a rock falling, and that gives him a concussion. And then a little more in the book, you start to realize he's a little sloppy. He's like kind of like oh, he's bleeding from like the ears, nose, and mouth, so they know something's wrong. <laughs> you know, the clear indicator that, that you know that he's <laughs> he's he's messed in the head, and then. Just like in the book, they go to sleep. They have this big storm, and then he wakes up. The other guy's dead. You know, he's he felt he, the concussions killed him. And then the the other climber kind of is is almost like succumbing to madness. He's kind of like, oh, if we die, we die. Who cares? He's very jolly. Like, let's make a cup of tea. And you can kind of tell that, like, okay, he's he maybe he's losing it. And then the guy who wants to be the leader, the German guy Carl, so upset that the other guy died that he's kind of like in shock so Eastwood has to kind of take control of the group because it all kind of happens very quickly once we get on the mountain yeah. you know uh, of everybody kind of falling and you know the the treacherous of them trying to come back down and there's no way they can come back down either because of the, the, the way this guy has uh, made them go up this chute and in the book, it's hard because this chute, they're going up this little path. It's like a water, so they're getting sprayed with water, water the entire time. And, you know, uh, they have to worry about avalanches, and they're getting soaked. So their only chance of coming back down is to go and come up over one of these holes in the mountain that we were talking about that's like an overlook. And then they can be rescued that way. So it's a little gripping near the end there where they're, they're, kind of, they're trying to come down and then one guy, and that's the perils of climbing. If one guy loses his balance, you can bring everybody down if you're not prepared to like yeah, hold the guy's yeah. weight. So one guy gets, the two guys end up falling and then the, the body ends up falling and then Eastwood falls and, and whacks himself and he's in this position where he's upside down famously hanging there you know, like 4,000 feet or 5,000 feet in the air and then when he's looking into the hole the re- where the rescuers are coming that's when he makes the realization all banged up he sees George Kennedy walking towards him limping like he's like wait a minute he's like you know you're limping man <laughs> you know he's kind of like it, it, yeah, the bells go off, off yeah. you know uh, when they were filming this the second day of filming they go up and there's a guy uh, Knowles who was a climber and he ends up getting killed on set because there was a a boulder comes down and and the and the boulder ends up hitting him and the guy who I brought up before Hoover the cameraman from the documentary he gets hit too and he I think he breaks his like femur or, or yeah, pelvis he gets injured yeah and a couple injuries on this yeah and at that point they were almost going to shut down production and I mean, Eastwood it was the second day yeah <laughs> and Eastwood was like you know maybe we should just not you know call this off i mean the the, the David Knowles was killed and a lot of the climbers came together and said, no, you know what he knew, you know, this is, that's, 
let's give a purpose, make, yeah. you know, we can't have this be in vain, you know, his death. So he let's, would die for nothing if this movie doesn't get Yeah, made. so, you know, and he knew what he was doing because he signed on willingly for this. So uh, it's an example of, again, like, you know, someone getting killed on set for these kind of movies, you know, in, in, in the 70s. Not to say that, I mean, I, I can't see that this stuff was overtly dangerous to what they were doing as opposed to when you get to the under end of it with the Vic Morrow. I mean, it was an accident where a boulder hit him more as opposed to it wasn't like they were safety in, right? But a yeah. death is a death. Although you know? there was a, another cameraman who kind of blames... Eastwood for... Eastwood yeah, because he got hurt. And I think that guy is the Frank principal... Stanley. I think he's the principal cameraman on it. He's the... he's the Maybe not be the DP, but he's the... You know, and he says... Because he got hurt and he blames it was Eastwood's, uh, you know, uh, going too quick and... Uh, and, and uh, you know, kind of the smash and go kind of approach. Lack, of, would, lack of preparation, he yeah. said, and you know, just moving too fast. And we don't know if that's just if he's bitter because he got hurt, or if that's true or whatever. I mean, yeah. Eastwood's always notorious for coming in under budget and you know getting shit done with one or two takes. You know, he's not one to do like you know twenty or forty takes on this kind of a thing. Yeah. So, well, you or I know somebody that was in a Clint Eastwood movie, and he. I know that guy too. <laughs> I said you and I know. Oh, I thought you said guy. you know a guy. Uh, I said you and I know somebody who was in this. In yeah, the and he told me that you know the the speed at which he films is kind of shocking. Yeah, like they just f- zip through things. It's very efficient. Yeah, he goes um, right through. Yeah, um, and he's known for that kind of a thing. Doing like you know, that's, he, you know, he'll he'll come in under budget with money left over sometimes, or you know. Uh, they usually have everything planned very well so that once they hit the ground running, they know what they're doing as opposed to just sitting around and trying to fiddle their thumbs. Uh, in the in the book, there's, a, the, you know, we talked about the Iger birds. It's much more emphasized on these people who come and want to pay money and they have to pay, they get waiting lines to, to, to have the telescopes to look. And like I said, this is, I think, a, a kind of a real life of, it's almost like the idea of like, you know, you're looking at a crash. People come, those, like at the circus, people come because they want to see people fall from the trapeze act as well as seeing like the danger or the fun of the clowns everyone's looking for someone to get hurt or get killed you know yeah. so uh the scene when george kennedy is looking through the periscope and then that couple comes up to him and says you know hey can we borrow your telescope i think in the book it's supposed to be they don't mention it but it's supposed to be a big hollywood couple i think it's supposed to be richard burton and liz taylor and then when you look at the movie the woman is american and the guy's english and then the woman says, like, you know, tell him we'll pay him money. So I think that's supposed to be implied that they're the rich couple, Richard Burton and yeah. Liz Taylor, that are there. Um, in the mo- in the the book, you know, um, they get him off the mountain and he's barely conscious. It's much more worse where he's out of it. Hyperthermia set in. He's hanging there and they're trying to tell him, like, you know, cut the rope. And he's he's like, I just want to go to sleep. Why are the they bothering character. me? The Eastwood character because yeah. he's so he's so fucked up at that point and he's and he's tangled around the body and the body's half out and rigor and cold is set in and he can't realize he's like, why is this guy so hard? But it's because he's dead. But he's so because I think he hit his face. He has a concussion. So by the time he's rescued, he's brought to a hospital, uh, maybe in the nearby town. Uh, ben, the George Kennedy character, comes to visit him, and there was even talk that he may lose his toes, but they saved his toes. But he he also broke some ribs from, like, putting the lasso around him that saved him. So when the Eastwood character's in 
the hospital when George Kennedy says, hello, how you doing? And then it's revealed that that was my daughter, you know, George at the place. When George Kennedy's about to leave, that's when Eastwood drops on him. Like, how long have you been working for us, uh, C2? And that's when the reveal in the book is that, that it was him. And he starts this, he explains himself saying, like I said earlier about the climbing camp is like, you know, I was underwater and these guys came in, they buy, bought me out and they made it into a resort. And I, you know, and then I was kind of indebted to them. And then I was kind of, uh, kind of, will, I guess willingly, but he was kind of wrestled into doing this, which he didn't know was going to be a murder. He just thought he was going up to help, yeah. you know, get this guy or point a guy out. And he was kind of, you know, it's much more forgivable. Uh, it sounds like the part he played, but then again, in the book, even though his mind is changing, he very much is like, you know, I'm the, okay, well, are we ever going to see each other again? He goes, I don't know. He leaves, and then it just ends up that the Eastwood character is alone because he, he, he's so mad at, the, at the, the girl for what she did. He tells her goodbye, even though she's like, I yeah. love you, and the same thing. So he's kind of left with his own devices, and it's kind of his own fault. He's made this bed now, you know. But, a, I like how they condensed it in the movie, though. They, yeah. they take out that hospital scene, and they make it all in the mountain, and they, they give the epilogue or the summation in the train ride back. And I think that works a lot better. Yeah, yeah. You know, of just what happened, and you know, and then, because I also like the idea, too, because it plays on, like, oh, you're a friend of mine, I understand, I'm going to let you, you know, they'll, they'll just think it was one of them, we don't have to let anybody else know. You know, yeah. it was one of the mountain well, because climbers. they never found out who was the killer, and so it's, that's why Eastwood had to go up. Everybody else, everybody died, so they're just like, "Well, and it's he, funny he too." Didn't, he couldn't figure out who was. The, yeah, uh, Thayer, <laughs> which David's one like, it was? He's so like, he, he killed, killed them all. all. Yeah, he's like, I can't believe you sanctioned them all. You know, so I enjoy that, and it's it's kind of a it's an uplifting ending where he's you know he, he, I would it would lead me to believe that he's going to be with the girl, you know, and he's and he's and then he's going to stay friends with the George Kennedy character. So it's much more kind of like a. Uh, like an upbeat ending there, uh, you know, than the book ending, which is he just ends up being alone by himself. Um, and, geez, I'm trying to think of what other mountain climbing movies that you have. There's a, um, a movie from the 80s that's pretty big called uh, Into the Void, I think it's called. Uh, Touching the Void. And it's short, but it's it's also about a mountain climbing team, I think, in Peru that gets stuck and they have to get helicoptered off and that kind of a thing. Um, so this was a big deal for, like, climbers. You know, I've talked to my brother-in-law and stuff like that. People love this movie. And then being able to, you know, that, that it was went and shot there, and that, that was a big... That gave you, know, like, a lot of street cred in the day when that was unheard of to actually go and do stuff. Like you were saying at the head of the cast, um, I twofold... I think if shot compositions were a little better, you could you could exploit the idea of a little more yeah. that he's on the mountain. But there are plenty of well, there's beautiful. Yeah, like I said vista shots, and there are definitely a lot of really impressive shots where you can see that you know Eastwood is that it's not a stuntman, that it is him on the side of a mountain or on a on a climate they're going through that line between the two mountains <laughs> or, when, or when he's you know, when he's climbing up with his legs on one side and his back on the other and he's kind of like yeah yeah, yeah. pushing There's his plenty weight. of like really impressive shots but there are other shots that you know the way that's done yeah it would have could have really been anywhere <laughs> yeah it could have been better if they've the done backyard it. um and yeah, I've always, when I was little, it was always for me is that there's that shot where the camera's looking down and you see him just like, tut, tut, 
you know, going back and forth. That's always like, whoa, you know, like, yeah, and then there's a couple side. of zoom backs where you like could pe- the pet, like a pendulum. Yeah. Back and, forth and it's him side. running around and, and there's a couple of zoom out shots where it's just like him on the side of the mountain holding. It's just like, I, you know, that's just like, that's too that's much for me. Shatner and in uh, uh, Star Trek Five, have I been as impressed with some rock climbing? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, ro- rock climbing! I was going to say there's a movie called the um, the Crash of a Freightliner. It's one of these TV movies from the uh, '70s. Very good, like Runaway Train thing. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, they have to get on top of the train because the, the, the it's the engineer's gone crazy so he's the runaway train that's played by the guy Bluto you know from the live action Popeye who's yeah, also yeah. in a Haunted Honeymoon he's like in five movies with a big beard mm-hmm. he's the trainman so they have to try to like stop him so they actually I think if I remember correctly Shatner in the in the movie is a old train conductor or something that's where they bring him they actually have him get on top of the train. And if you talk to Shatner now about it, Shatner's like, this is one of the craziest things I've ever done. As he's on top of this Amtrak train going at full, full speed, who knows if they're fucking <laughs> connected and they're, you know, and they're shooting around and he's walking to the top of this train. And that movie is insane because there's parts of it where it's like the track is broke. So they have, they have these train guys having to, like, fix the track in time so that when the train's coming, the train can go on the proper track. And they have these shots where it's like the... And I think these guys are showing off because they're used to doing it, these train guys. But, like, they're hitting the hammer. He walks in front of the train. The train goes right by, like, within seconds. It's yeah. all, you know, it looks like now it's, you know, you 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 know it's all you do it all with special effects. So I wonder, some of this stuff, like Eastwood talks about, he said evidently to, to, to Ebert that he went to a theater and, in disguise. And he watched, some people watched the gaze of reactions. And some women were like, how do they do this? And it's like, oh, special effects. Or it's like, they didn't even believe they really did some of this. And I wonder now if some of this stuff doesn't look as impressive because we're so used to seeing, like, anything they would do nowadays. Uh, take Tom Cruise out of the situation. I would say 90% of what they would do nowadays would be green screen, you know, on, on, in a studio. Or they would do something where it's very minimal risk to the actor. So, but then when you see the finalized version on, TV, on the movies, it looks so harrowing, so believable, or so fake. Whatever, you know, that our yeah. eye is used to that kind of action. When you see it, and I think you could take this to anything else. Like if you watch a car chase movie, it doesn't look as impressive because it's like we've seen it a thousand times. Yeah, or yeah. we've seen, you know, if you're doing something CGI'd, uh, fake, you can make it look a lot better than it, it would look in real life, so much so that, you know, it, it could be an impossible angle or shot. So some of this stuff, when you're watching it, it's hard to get perspective on it. I mean, maybe when you see like the the hotel way down in the valley or something like that, you could tell like there's a, there's a. Well, I think it's uh, I think like we were talking about with the stuff that's not so PC. I think when you watch something like this, you kind of have to put yourself, and that's something that we try to do: was put things in context of when it was made, whether it's content in terms of what was going on in history, or in the history of filmmaking, what was going on. You know, I think that's. I think any viewer that chooses to go see this and maybe hasn't seen it before, I think not only put yourself in the your nineteen seventy five shoes <laughs> of you know of the jokes and the, like of things like rape jokes and stuff, but also into like what what do you think you know think of other movies around that time and before and think have you ever seen anything like this? I think you're right. I think more. For me, I, I would think more that this does this maybe does not seem as impressive now, less because of 
like we less because of special effects and what we expect, but more because like we've seen things like this. More yeah, vertical limit and cliffhanger. All these movies that are yeah. just that are or doing even it. you know Mission Impossible two and it's you know John Woo uh, and, yeah yeah uh, Tom Cruise climbing up a rock yeah, free face. climbing with you like know, no equipment on <laughs> you know it's like I feel like it's maybe less impressive because of that and not so much because like oh this is just he's in front of a he's been keyed in on a green screen or whatever yeah I think if you say like wow like this really had never been done before and then you see it. And then you watch this movie. It is impressive. I mean, they went up to 10,000 feet. Iger, I think, is like 13,000 feet high in that one wall, the North Face. I think they call another name for it, the Murder Wall. And then there's the Spider, the, is it like the Spider Wall, where, where it gets snowy. And then there's these things you have to worry about, which happens in the movie. It's pronounced Fern, but it's spelled in a German way, where these storms will come in. And then what the, end, what the, the, the danger with these storms is, if you're climbing, you get stuck up there. It's it's a it's a, a a system that'll pelt you with snow or whatever, and then it'll get warm and everything melts and it'll freeze quickly and everything just freezes over. So now you're stuck up there. You're you're in a coat of ice and you can't move anywhere because you can't put your picks in anywhere because it's just all ice. Uh, you can't go anywhere because everything will just collapse. And then once everything starts melting, you're going to have another avalanche. So it's just uh it's it's a dangerous situation to get in these things. And then. You know, he doesn't even end up climbing. There's not, they're not even successful. They get, what, ha- yeah. halfway up the mountain. Well, he wasn't successful the first two times, yeah. the character Hemlock. <laughs> tried, tried, to, <laughs> tried to go up there. So, um, and we've been looking to do uh, stuff like this for a little while. We were talking about doing, like, some, some mountain climbing um, yeah, extravaganza. Yeah, well, you know, we, we've talked about doing this movie specifically and uh, for a while. Yeah. You know, this is one that you've been wanting to do for... I don't know if it's since the inception of the show, but definitely for the last couple of years, this has been brought up on the. It's been put on the on the board. Yeah, <laughs> it's a fun <laughs> one. Possible things to do because it's not. It's it's almost like a. It's it's a it's a B side of Eastwood's. You know, it's it's a fun installment. I mean, you, a couple of years later, he does something similar to this. You get Firefox, which is also more of a, a spy espionage movie, and that's directly connect, connected to Russia and getting that spy plane back. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it would be interesting now for me to revisit that and see if there is a connection. You know, do they try to make it in such a way that there's not just him doing another spy movie? Like, you know, it, do they distance it from, you know, he's not climbing any mountains in Firefox, <laughs> fire but, you know, because it is very similar, like, you know, espionage and spy plots. But this was this was in vogue at the time. Um, so uh, it's a good it's a good installment that is not in, uh, a Western or one of these, you know, Dirty Harry movies or cop movies, you know. Uh so yeah, book was exciting. Like I said, I, I highly recommend the book. I think it's a good watch if you haven't seen this movie. I think a lot of our audience maybe have seen it. I think it'll be 50-50. I think it's funny that the emphasis of that they didn't change a whole lot about the book, but then the entire podcast is about you talking about how different the book is. <laughs> Yeah. Well, how was it different? <laughs> you just like everything you talked about in the book was stuff that wasn't in the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. I, you know, but it was like it's but it's background, I guess, because they condensed it. You know, yeah. so it's a lot of like the 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 psycholog- trying to give a little uh, a glimpse into the people's characters. I guess. I mean, the only major stuff that they they ended up changing was him not living in a church. The ending with the reveal, yeah, yeah. and then which I liked. I said was that they they let the dog live. You yeah. know, which uh, very easily at that era, you could have had them kill the dog. 
You know, you could have very easily had Eastwood get out of the car and shoot the dog with the shotgun and like, oh my God, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's a movie called Hardcore, which I've brought up on this podcast before, George C. Scott, and, and it's a movie for years I didn't know the name of until I found out recently. And the reason, one of the reasons I remember it is because there's a climactic scene where George C. Scott's so pissed he ends up shooting a sh- cat with a shotgun. You know, and it's like, and I saw that when I shouldn't have seen it, like five or six. I don't know. That might not be hardcore. Was that no, movie? I'm sorry, not hardcore. I'm sorry, Rage. Yeah, right. Yeah, Rage is the movie I'm talking about, which he directed. And, you know, but it's like, you know, so when we're, when we're in an era where people are making rape jokes, when they're making jokes about, um, you know, um, races and stuff, you very easily could have an animal getting killed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, you know, uh, but there, you know, it's, it's just like I said, I, I was impressed by the writing of the book. You could see why it becomes a bestseller. And this guy, Trevarian, ends up having a... Uh, a career. He was very secretive about his his uh, of, of of his true identity, which didn't end up getting out until like the late nineties. And for a while, there was the um, the the unique thing about him was he wrote in a lot of different genres. So he did these two books, this, and I said there's a sequel called The Loose Sanction. But then he did other things under other under other pen names. And he is unique in the sense where he had international bestsellers, but they were in different genres, where a lot of people who, like Stephen King is known for horror, or, you know, this guy's known for courtroom dramas, where this guy was able to successfully here do uh, bestsellers that that were, like, romantic. There's a a, a psychological horror movie or book from the early 80s that was very popular. So... For a while, the since he kept his he he wouldn't do any press for the book releases. He was very it was almost it's almost like Daft Punk. He didn't want people to know who he was. So people used to think it was actually a pseudonym for a lot of authors, you know, together. Or for a while, people then also thought it was the guy who was writing the Born series. It was a pseudonym for him doing the, the that did the Born. That it was really him. Where it was just ends up being this guy who we said um, the uh, Whitaker who gets credit on the, on the screenplay. But he didn't, he didn't like the movie either, which I find... He called it, what, vapid? He yeah. said he said that he didn't like, you know, which is funny because, like I said, it's so much like the the book. Well, what, I mean, what, at what point are you... <laughs> you're splitting hairs here. It's almost like um, Alan Moore. You know, Alan Moore ends up hating everything that ends up getting... He, he signs off on getting the adaptation, yeah. and then he ends up not only hating it, he takes his name off of it, and he doesn't want even to be associated with it. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of a thing where it's like, well... What did you want? I think it's a faithful adaptation, you know? I mean, it, it couldn't get into much more about it. And it also, I thought, handled stuff kind of well so it doesn't too much become like a spoof of the Bond series. Yeah. But I think one of the, 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 the downside of it is, which I was trying to say at the, bo- the beginning of the podcast, is that it's now, since Bond was so popular, it's going to be judged against it. You know, it, it can't help but be yeah. judged against it because it is in that realm and it clearly is making nods at it. Yeah. So, you know, with, you know, I mean, I, there's, there's a YouTube video where it's like the racism in Hollywood and this has a, I watched it, this has a whole segment. It's about, <laughs> you know, Jemima Brown, you know, and, you, and, you're, and it's like, well, you know, it's, it's, it goes back to, you know, you can't blame know. Eastwood, you know, for it all. I you don't know. know. Call me, I mean, it seems like that would have been, seemed more racist then than I would imagine now. Yeah, I mean, he even in, in both the book and the in the script, he's like, "What?" You know, he's like, "And what does he say?" My name's Uncle Ben. You know, that's, and she's like, "She's like, no, that's my mom was into ethnic." And he's like, "Okay, you know," but it's it's more of a spoof on the you know, how do you get past in Goldfinger pussy galore? It's like, how do you seriously take that? Where it's like, yeah, honestly, like I didn't it even occur to me that oh, that's, Jemima that's Brown huge, was a. The, you know, because uh, was like a play on pussy galore because there's nothing sexual about it. No, but it's the it's the you know it it's the uh, flamboyant kind of a name idea where it's I like know. a black woman 
being Jemima. Yeah, I know, but I mean, when I taught classes, I mean, I had a girl named Sparkle <laughs> in my class, you know? Racist. <laughs> it was just like, people yeah. have crazy names. Moon unit, right? And, it, and I don't, I mean, I'm ignorant to black culture. I mean, yeah. you know, Aunt Jemima was named Jemima. I mean, yeah. it, it's a name. <laughs> yeah, and they still use her. I mean, I mean, the, they still use her light very subtly, but those, all those uh, syrup bottles are yeah. in her likeness. To me, it was like, all right, that's a, that's a, a cultural name, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, I no, people, that's another thing. I mean, it, it's funny enough because we watched the, the video and it's, uh, they're up in arms about that, but they don't make no mention now the rape jokes. And you're like, oh, there's two <laughs> rape jokes in here that, are, or maybe three, you know, that are kind of like, ooh. So can't you? That's I don't think I don't know. Uh, to me, it, it was never funny <laughs> to joke about rape, but it was a different time. So a different time. Um, it's now it's the new name of our podcast. A different time. <laughs> well, because we got some flack which we've gone into in the past about our falling down episode. So if you want to go listen to our. Taking of the Pelham 123 episode, we bring up some of the flack we got because of the falling down <laughs> episode. And then you go back and listen to the falling down episode for where it all began because people, well, not people, but one person was kind of uh, miffed of things. Yeah. Uh, so now that we're in February and we're doing Kung Fu February, we're just taking the, the Kung Fu out of the February. <laughs> Pulling the Kung Fu out. Yeah. We've got another uh, treat in store that um, if we were to tease it, we'd kind of give it all away and i feel like even if we uh maybe but after i'm not gonna say what but we'll see maybe after next after the next episode maybe that what's gonna be happening will maybe be the february tradition from now on we're gonna run out of movies then (sighs) we'll see you know no i mean not so much i'll explain afterwards (laughs) okay you'll see what i mean uh oh of us doing like kitschy shit of us doing yes a certain not 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 a specific genre but whatever yeah but do you see cryptic for no reason did you see my connection which i think uh on the overview of saturday night movie sleepovers this is a good installment to show back in the 70s people doing shit for real where usually we're on the other end of that spectrum talking about how we're talking about the 80s we're always talking about like movie magic of special facts and then going into computerized and then by 90s they actually just had to do it (laughs) (laughs) go up and do that shit you know uh and you know, so that that's that's very interesting. Well, uh, it's it's kind of like uh, not that in the abyss they went into the abyss, but they went underwater. But they went underwater and they shot that movie underwater, and they actually developed scuba gear to do that. Yeah, to be able to do what they needed to do. Forget the CGI technology for the water people. Yeah, it, it, he developed uh, scuba gear that that get so that, that mouse to breathe. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, well, not the, well, I, don't I, don't know, I don't know about the liquid, but <laughs> yeah. the liquid oxygen, but like so that they could talk. Yeah. It's my understanding, and if we ever do the abyss, which is a very likely yeah. possibility at some point, we'll talk about it's it. It's my here. memory that the scuba gear, so because they that talk a, to yeah, each they, other, the equipment was so that, you that can was hear. invented for the movie. Yeah, and that I, was actually used. I think that yeah, that style. I mean, you were able to have, and there was a way in in the old days, if you're not using the scuba gear in your mouth to be able to talk, but the way they did it with yeah. the lights to see it, that made Ed Harris had a psychological breakdown after that. Which we talk about, I think, in State of Grace, but right, he fucking right. went nuts because of the rigors of Jim Cameron. You know, that's so when you get pushed to do stuff that's like, you know, nuts, getting again to like, you know, all the the accidents. Jim Cameron went down to the Titanic. He took the, he sank the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
Very, very crazy. So, that, so this is an interesting one, uh, an installment into the annals of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers because it does show back in the day, you know, you have to just go out and do the crap yourself. You that, know? and it's, you know, like I said, it's clear, like, bond exploitation. It's definitely certainly an exploitation movie. Yeah. Oh, uh, we haven't done a Bond yet. We've talked about it. It's a big... It's a, it's I'm a very, weighty I'm topic. very intimidated yeah. about doing a Bond movie. I mean, movie. you think about... I feel like it's a, it's a tall order for us. But I don't think it's something we... It's not anything we haven't done before we've done tall orders i would say you could say batman i mean granted there's what 30 movies or so like not we're not gonna do every movie there's yeah. a big catalog but i feel like other topics that we've gotten into like star wars or oh yeah the, you know the, the but anniversary those are big, movies but those are like the movies that we grew up with well that we you know we plan yeah there's a lot of work for us to do three hours on two and a half hours on batman yeah uh, do three hours on star wars and still not get to all the shit we wanted to do. for star wars yeah so with, <laughs> with bond it'd be there'd be a couple things so it's, be... it's, it's a big the tall order and so it's a little bit of intimidating i think if anybody could and there's do it, also we could do it. there's the fact that like you and i like different bond movies so yeah. then it's come deciding which bond movie we're gonna do yeah i'd be goldfinger you'd be her majesty's secret service yeah, I mean, to me, I'd be like Goldfinger. I mean, that's everybody's favorite. Yeah. Why don't? Why don't? Why do that one? Let's do some crazy. Let's yeah. do it to me the Dalton one. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And or... I would say, well, that's the reason why everyone <laughs> likes Goldfinger. That's, you know. But um, maybe you know what? Maybe we next year we do February and we could do three. We can do like Goldfinger, Live and Let Die, and then Her Majesty's Secret Service, oh, and we'll that kind see. of eclipses it all, right? That gives you. A, that gives you the best of the Connery, the best of maybe arguably Roger Moore, and mm -hmm. then the clutch. And then the oddball out. Yeah, but the oddball out, Which I don't is, think it gives it. It's one of my favorite ones. I know I do it like is. I, and I, it's one of my favorite ones, too. I just, I, I, I hold Goldfinger in the esteem just because it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, for me, has everything that, that, that Goldfinger or the bond is about. Like, it's almost like it's hitting all on all cylinders at that point before it gets kind of yeah. silly, you know? Yeah. My point is only like, I mean, which doesn't make sense because we've done Star Wars and Indiana Jones, but, you know, the inception of the show was to talk about movies that don't get a lot of... Of, of stuff. A lot of discussion and a lot of... Yeah. You know, and Goldfinger's the one that does get a lot of discussion, a lot of... Praise. But, like I said, it doesn't make sense, that argument, because we've done... Well, you know what we can do? Huge we, blockbusters. We could do the TV, the, the 50s TV Jimmy Bond with Peter Lorre. <laughs> the Casino Royale. The Casino Royale. We'll do that one. Or, God, jeez, imagine we did the... the um, was it the Blake Edwards Casino Royale with, with freaking Woody <laughs> Allen and Orson Welles? That, Peter Sellers, that crazy-ass movie. So point is, we've thought about doing a Bond for a while, but it's hard because, you know, then we're like, should we do, uh, you then know... we're going to have to read all the Ian Fleming books. I don't think that. we... I've tried, you know, I don't think we'll have to read that. They're thing. shorter than the eye you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I was, I was pleasantly surprised because it, it took me about a week and a half. I'm a very slow reader, and I blew through this one, so... It really held my interest, which was fun. Uh, I've tried to read some of the, the the Ian Fleming books, but they you 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 realize very quickly that there's a difference between the Ian Fleming books and the movies, which is a, a, a conversation for another day. But certainly with the first three Connery movies, they're much more closer to the Ian Fleming books. But then when you go off, they're not even they're barely just taking the title. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Moonraker and A Spy Who Loved Me. They the plot has nothing to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and you know I've read a lot of the short stories, and it's very much like a he's just a hitman or a guy for hire. So yeah, we've thought about doing Bonds before. Is there other movies we've done? Remo, that's kind of certainly in the world of the the spy. Have did we do any other um, crime or not crime, but spy kind of stuff? Espionage? No, I don't know if we've done. I don't any know of. if we've done any more. 
Like I mean, that just kind of is a whole genre of it. Yeah. And and uh I think people will easily forget Remo Williams is kind of in that. We did raise the Titanic. We did yeah, and Raise <laughs> the Titanic is kind of spy yeah, it's got espionage. A little, it's got a little bit of that in it. Yeah, certainly. Clive Cluster, this is the era of it. A big another big favorite of mine, that film. Um so yeah, I guess you could term that as a because it's a it's more Cold War. Russia, you know, we want to get there quicker before they get the what is the I forget the Labranium, whatever the hell the name of that stuff is. This the, the adamantium. The, 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 the adamantium, <laughs> the, the vicocium. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so maybe, maybe we, who knows? Who knows going down the, but the pike? Look, we'll do a bond yeah. at some point. Yeah, and then it's, it's just, uh, it's also too hard because people. The funny thing is, people <laughs> we're, out there, we're, we're kind of rambling here at the end though, but it's kind of funny because last, we had talked about doing one over the summer. Yeah. And then we decided that, like, maybe it's just too much. Well, then Blake you, you, said, you're like, Jesus, that's so much involved. Yeah, and, the, and, like, you know, you were dealing with book stuff, and I was busy, and it was like, I don't know if we have time. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a real undertaking, and it's like, how do we, there's a lot of history there that you have to talk about. And then we ended up doing, uh, like, Star Trek four, six. six. But then we ended up talking about like, the, the entire, history of Star Trek. Yeah. And we're like, we could have just done it. This could have been our anniversary <laughs> episode here. <laughs> like, it wasn't any more of a, doing Star Trek really wasn't any more of an undertaking then, than doing a Bond movie yeah. was. It just, and then that was just a regular episode. We didn't even have that the anniversary <laughs> or something. That could have been the. The, the only know. difference is that like we knew a little bit more about Star Trek going in. At least I knew, I knew way more about Star Trek than I would about the history of James Bond. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've seen all the movies, but I'm not like a student of Bond. No, you know, I, I the mean... The way I was Star Trek. So it was a little less work, but it was such a big topic that we kind of did not even thinking about it, whereas... Bond, you'd have Bond to go is do a, some... Bond is a big... You know, I was intimidated to do Bond, but I wasn't intimidated to tackle... Well, you already had some knowledge. franchise I mean, of Star Wars. For me with Bond, Trek, I've, I, mean. I read a lot of the early Bond stuff. And um, not all of it, but I've read a, a good amount of it, and I kind of have a... a, 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 a a frame around the history of it and that, and then and Ian Fleming himself, and I've done some stuff, research. Um, yeah, and then it's funny, because then, like, two years ago, we were looking for easy movies to do, and then we, we do fucking Blade Runner. <laughs> we do Raiders Lost Ark in the same month, I think. <laughs> yeah, then we do Star Wars. Then we do Star Wars as a secret episode. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we're looking for, like, easy stuff to do, Please. and we're like, we're doing, like, let's do the whole Lord of the Rings series. Let's you do know? a four-hour, we'll read... You know, the we'll read, do a table read of we'll, uh, we'll read a Philip K. Dick book novel, and then we'll talk about yeah, we'll talk about the differences of uh, four the, hours on the, yeah. So it's just we laugh because we will we'll, we'll put these on the morality of man, yeah, existential <laughs> questions. We'll put these things like, well, I don't know, that's a heavy topic. Let's do and then we'll end up doing like the history of sci-fi, <laughs> or whatever. So. Uh, point long way around. No is, rhyme or reason. Yeah, and then then people gonna get mad. Like, hey man, I wanted you to do like a like a Brosnan movie. It's like, oh, so we got to do like one of every every guy. Yeah, we have to do one of every uh, Bond. To, you know to satisfy everybody. So you know, uh, but anyway, that's the that's this week's episode. Um, I guess to give a hint to next week's episode, we don't ever give hints, but it's kind of kind of related. Minus Clint Eastwood, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well. You know, you'll see. Yeah. Two weeks. Two yeah. weeks. Uh, part and par- parcel. So to, 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 to usher in the second year of Kung Fu February, this year minus the Kung Fu. And uh, let's see. What else? So Saturday Night Movie Sleepover. You can catch us on uh, 
We're on all the social medias. Just check us out there. You can find the podcast, as you've already did. Tell people, friends about it. You can find this podcast where you find your podcasts. Uh, you can check out our homepage because our homepage um, has a lot of extras that you know you don't really get uh, anywhere else. Uh, we'd like to thank CLNS Media Network, our partners, uh, and and helping us out with this. We're part of the CLNS Media Network nowadays, too, uh, going along in this 2019. Uh, Blake has got uh, his book and his podcast and his new podcast and his new book. Busy. Yeah. Got scored to death, at scored to death on social media, on social media scored to death. The book is called Scored to Death Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. The podcast is called Squirt It at the Podcast, and I'm also now hosting a podcast for the Damn Fine Network called Cuts from the Crypt. And you've got And I'm now working on a second Squirt to Death book, but we got some time before any significant announcements to be made with that. It's going to take time. It takes time to write a book. It's in development. It's in development. And of course, Deanna also has a book. I do. Yeah, Blood in the Streets. It's on paperback, uh, audiobook, and ebook. You can get that Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books from. Uh, we like to say, please help out your local podcaster. If you want to support us, go buy our books. That'll be great of you. You can get signed copies of either one of our books by going to our website meet Dion Bayer you score to death score to death.com yep uh, uh, that's about it for now on, on, on that front we'll be back in two weeks uh, no more announcements right that's about it right? I don't think so yeah uh, we hope you like what, you, what you've been doing like we always say please let a friend know you can get in contact with us give us suggestions uh, comments concerns whatever and uh, we'll see you back here real soon later later